I do know that Dr. Uh, Robert M. Price is a New Testament scholar and author of dozens of books, I understand, dozens of books um, on biblical studies and the historicity of Jesus. And he is the host of both the Bible Geek and the Lovecraft Geek podcasts. Uh, he's a former Baptist minister. And uh, Dr. Price was also a member of the Jesus Project. Uh, group of a group of about 150 individuals who studied the historicity of Jesus and the Gospels. The organizer, uh, Doctor, excuse me, D Doctor Price was also the organizer of a web community for those interested in the historicity of Christianity. All right, so he is here to share his wisdom, his knowledge, and his insight with us tonight. So um, I'll just pull you on here, Doctor Price. Welcome, welcome. Uh, it's good to be here. I, I really don't seem to have much wisdom or knowledge because <laughs> I thought I had this straight and I was going to come on and then I thought, wait a minute, I don't see a link. And I looked at my schedule book and I didn't have it written down here. And I thought, have I confused this with another one? So uh, uh, sorry about this. Oh. No problem. No, no problem. Um, you know, uh, we have uh, Will with us here. He's uh, he's got a um, uh, he's got a TikTok page, and he's got a he's got quite a quite a go, he's quite a going concern over there on TikTok, and he wanted to join anyway. So he, we were talking here in the meantime. But welcome, welcome, Doctor Price. It is an honor and a privilege to to have you on with us. Um, how do you prefer to be addressed, Doctor Price, no, or how no, just Bob? I I hate pretension and pomposity. <laughs> Okay. I'm just doing it out of respect. So, Oh, I appreciate that. But I mean, if I were to demand it, I, I hate when people call me. I, I, I don't like that. I just like, I feel the same way. Uh, uh. Hey, um, Bob, are you, are you, or were you at some point a professor at Liberty university? No, I, I have a friend who is Gary Habermas, but uh, I've, I've never been associated with them. Um, Okay, somebody asked um, earlier if you were the um, Robert Price that is a professor at Liberty, and I wasn't sure. Huh. Oh, I, I didn't know there was one, but I know there are a, a few other Robert Prices out there. In fact, on Amazon, you'll find a whole bunch of books by me, but I always tell people the ones about South Africa and the ones about guns are, are not me. They're, they're different Robert M. Prices from the multiverse, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I didn't know there was uh, someone cursed with the same name at, at Liberty. How many books so do you have? Hired them? <laughs> how many? How many books have you written? Uh, it seems to me I checked recently is about thirty or so, uh, and. Uh, a few of them are self-published, um, but uh, uh, there are a bunch from uh, Prometheus books, uh, from Touchstone books, and uh, what was it? Pitchstone. Yeah, Pitchstone books. Uh, and, uh, oh, uh, from, from a few others. I also edit fiction anthologies, and there are about 30 of those from different publishers. Uh, it mainly... Um, related to the H.P. Lovecraft genre. Uh, so I've uh, got a surprising number of them coming out. I'm working on another one 
now. I have another one coming out any minute. The Gospels behind the Gospels. and uh, I just love writing. I haven't had the... Uh... Uh, the pleasure of reading any of your books yet, uh, but uh, I know you have a book, and I think this uh, will lead into uh, the main topic tonight. And I I know you have a book, something about the colossal apostle. And mm-hmm. now now would I be like I don't, would I be right in saying that that would be, uh, without saying any names would it be uh, the initial of P. Yeah, yeah. The amazing colossal apostle, the search for the historical Paul. Uh, This goes with other books I've done with cheesy uh, 50s sci-fi titles, like there's The Night of the Living Savior and uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man and uh, stuff like that. Uh, But... uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's one about Paul and various questions about who assembled the letters, who wrote them, uh, are they patchwork quilts or are they actually coherent um, uh, letters or treatises? When were they written? Uh, who was Paul? How much fiction has been attached to him, and so forth? I would love to hear all about that. Yeah, could you please expound on that, Bob? Yeah, I I think, um, I I know this is going to sound crazy, but uh, I uh, follow a tradition of scholarship that uh, sees a connection between Paul and Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician, uh, from the Book of Acts and in early church fathers, who was uh, thought to be the father of Gnosticism. And it's kind of interesting that while the uh, church fathers said Simon was the father of Gnosticism, uh, the Gnostics and Marcionites and Encratites and other heretics said um, that, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the church fathers said Simon Magus was the fountainhead of heresy, uh, but uh, the Gnostics, uh, Marcionites, etc., said that Paul was their founder. And indeed, uh, the first commentaries we have on uh, any uh, Pauline epistles are by Gnostics and Marcionites. Uh, In fact, I think that uh, it's accurate to say the first Pauline Christians we know of were the Marcionites and Gnostics, and that the churches uh, to which the epistles are addressed are really fictive narratives, much like in... uh, like in the Odyssey, uh, supposedly you're hearing um, Odysseus tell his story to a bunch of people around a campfire. Well, it's obvious to everybody that, yeah, this is part of the narrative. Uh, there, there weren't really any people around a campfire for Odysseus to be talking to. It was Homer anyway. And, and I think in the same way, the Corinthians, the Philippians, the Thessalonians are, uh, though they're eventually were churches in those places, I think they're really fictive narratives that uh, uh, the the uh, author, the ostensible author, Paul is, is like Odysseus, that uh, it seems to me that the Dutch radical critics of the late 19th, early 20th centuries uh, probably were right that these letters were written by various Gnostic, Marcionite, and later Catholic Paulinists. 
and that each one, each of the letters is a kind of a patchwork and a digest of opinions from different Paulinists, uh, just as if you, you might have a, a digest of a rival Lutheran uh, standpoints today, because immediately they're that fragmented too. Like if you read 1 Corinthians, one of the longest ones, you'll immediately be puzzled as to why it, like every other chapter just about seems to be refuting the argument of the one before. Like, can women speak publicly in church? Well, according to uh, uh, chapter uh, 12, yes, they can. Uh, according to chapter 14, no, they can't. Um, is speaking in tongues a, a great thing? Well, in chapter 12, again, oh yeah, it's terrific. But in chapter 13, that's kids stuff, it's over with. In chapter 14, uh, well, it's okay, but, uh, but maybe it's more trouble than it's worth. Uh, in one chapter, Paul says, can Christians go eat meat um, that was bought from... Uh, pagan sacrifices in temples because they often had more meat than the priests could eat or left over from the sacrifices so they sold it in the meat market and in one chapter there's this long thing saying oh yeah of course uh, if, if we realize these these pagan gods don't even exist they're figments of the imagination so if you're eating meat uh, dedicated to them so what it's just a all you can eat buffet eat it um, but then and in another one it says oh, oh no uh, the ancient Israelites did this and God killed thousands of them don't take the risk uh, and on and on it goes does he preach wisdom and philosophy well in chapter one no but in chapter two well, come to think of it, among the mature, we do preach wisdom, but not a wisdom of this world or the archons that rule it. <laughs> uh, can an apostle live off of donations from his congregations in one chapter? Well, of course, yeah, we have every right to do that. But in another one, of course, we never do that because it's too easily misconstrued and so on and so on. Or chapter 15 about the resurrection. He seems to be arguing against people that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And he's, oh yeah, here's the list of witnesses. But then he's arguing that, look, if you accept that Jesus rose, what's the problem saying that the rest of us will? And you get the impression, oh, he's talking about Gnostics that believe this is going to be a physical resurrection, but as of baptism, you're spiritually resurrected. And then he seems to be talking about people that don't believe there's any life after death. Uh, in Romans, it's the same sort of thing. In chapters uh, 9 through 11, they're all discussing the role of Israel in God's providence. Will they believe in Jesus or not? And it's like three different topics. He goes back and forth between what I just said and predestination and so forth. A, a professor of mine once pointed out, look at commentaries on any Pauline epistle and you find out they're all exercises in harmonization. The scholars assuming, yeah, Paul wrote this whole thing all right, but uh, 
how did he get from this point to that one? Uh, how is this a follow-up to that one? What's the thread of logic? Well, maybe he meant this, and, and it's just contrivance after contrivance. We've learned with the Gospels that the discontinuities that, that you find everywhere are the result of people just patching together stories and sayings and putting them in an almost random order. Well, why don't we recognize that that's true of the epistles too? They're patchwork quilts of odd bits from different people who venerated Paul. And uh, so I think it's very complex to, to the point where it's difficult to say who wrote what, but I do think that these scholars were right in identifying Paul and Simon Magus, uh, who the latter, by the way, not only appears in the New Testament, but also in Josephus's history. Uh, and he is associated with a group of Herodian and Roman uh, aristocrats uh, with whom Paul is associated in Acts. And I could go on and on and on um, and, and bore you into a coma, but there, it seems to me that uh, there are many puzzles and it's uh, way past time we uh, scholars really got to work on them rather than just trying to whitewash and paper over everything. So I think Paul was the same guy as Simon Magus, uh, and Gnostics and Marcionites were his biggest fans until they grew so important and popular that the emerging Catholic Church said, look, this guy's got some good ideas. He, he created a, a, a New Testament to add to the old. Uh, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we should take his text and add some to it to make him sound a little more like us, and we can absorb them. And they, they did pretty much. Uh, they were, the Gnostics, the Marcionites were either stamped out or died out. Uh, so there's a lot going on that, that mainstream scholarship just ignores, and, and I think um, it, falsely so. That's amazing. Um, could you could you please uh, expound a little bit more upon the evidence that you believe that proves that Simon Magus is Paul? Well, uh, at first, uh, one of F.C. Bauer's uh, students, I, for some reason, cannot think of, there were a bunch of them, Schwegler and Zeller and so on, I can't quite remember who, one of them pointed out a very interesting parallel between um, the story in the book of Acts where, where, um, where uh, Simon is introduced. Uh, we're told that... Um, that Simon was uh, winning over all the Samaritans to, to faith in him, uh, claiming that he was the great power of God, or mainly just God, and that he did magic to probably intending some sort of tricks, but he, he did these astounding feats and everybody was flocking to him. Well, uh, Philip, one of the, the so-called deacons, a kind of a second group of apostles, uh, he went up there, and uh, it doesn't say really why or, or how it happened, but he hears this, and he wins everybody over to Christianity. And uh, how'd he do it? Well, 
there are later stories that, well, uh, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. They, they all get baptized, including Simon. So they're all Christians. And the apostles, Peter, John, and the rest in Jerusalem hear about this. But um, though baptized, the Samaritan believers have not yet received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And um, they figure, well, it's only because we apostles have the authority to do that. So they send Peter and John up there to, to um, impart the Spirit to, to these newly baptized Samaritans. And apparently they start to prophesy and speak in tongues. There's at least some kind of visual, audible manifestation, because it says when Simon sees that the, through the laying on of hands, the apostles conveyed the spirit, he says to Peter, uh, you know, uh, I'm a pro like you. Um, I'd be happy to pay you to show me how to do this. Uh, and, uh, and Peter is stung and says, you think you can buy the gift of God with money? I can see where you're headed, buddy. Uh, you're going to be uh, bound in hell with the chains of anguish and all that. And he says, no, 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 please pray for me that this doesn't happen. Well, what was he trying to buy? The power unique to the apostles. And it, he was rebuffed. Now, that story once you notice it, is kind of parallel to what happens in the epistle to the Galatians, where um, Paul, or somebody in his name, is saying that um, he went to Jerusalem to uh, meet the, the uh, pillars, the apostles in Jerusalem, and uh, to run his gospel by them, because it wasn't exactly the same. He didn't preach that Christian Jews had to be circumcised, but Peter and the others did. So he says, here's what I'm preaching. This is what Christ called me to preach. Uh, I'd like your recognition. And so they, all right, uh, on one condition, if you will, among your many churches that he founded all over the place, if you will take up uh, money to support our struggling home office in Jerusalem, because Acts says they were a, a commune and naturally, you know, you're not going to be in one of those very long before everybody's broke. And uh, and so he says, oh, yeah, OK, no, no problem. And uh, he says now later, uh, the the um, envoys of, of James and Peter and the others showed up in one of his churches telling the, the people that, you know, Paul didn't really tell you the whole story. You do have to be circumcised. And when Paul gets a, whole, a load of this, uh, there's this big split between them. And, um, and, and so uh, Bauer's disciple, this other scholar, said, you know, this seems kind of parallel. Simon is agreeing to uh, pay tribute to the Jerusalem apostles if they will recognize him as an apostle. And, uh, and it doesn't work out. He gets rebuffed eventually. Well, that's just what happens with Simon Magus. Peter rebukes him for wanting to buy apostleship uh, with money. And uh, he said, I bet that this is really a retelling of the story in Galatians, 
at a time when Luke or whoever wrote the Acts of the Apostles is trying to calm everybody down and to reconcile the warring factions of early Christianity. And so the, the uh, Catholics and the Jewish Christians, both of whom wanted to retain the Old Testament as scripture, uh, they were, um, uh, they, they um, didn't like Paul because he said, if you're a Gentile convert, you don't have to keep the Torah. You don't have to circumcise your kids. And they said, oh, no. Well, uh, let's see if we can get everybody together. And this is why in the book of Acts, every spectacular thing Peter does, Paul does. Uh, both make miraculous escapes from prison where the doors open by themselves, both preach successfully to Gentiles, uh, both of them heal in miraculous and bizarre fashions, Peter's shadow healing people as it falls over them, Paul's uh, handkerchiefs and carpenter aprons taken to other people heal is right out of the Middle Ages. As Dr. McCoy said in uh, Star Trek IV, we're dealing with medievalism here, Jim. Uh, and uh, what they both raise some from the dead, they both uh, heal a lame guy, and so on. Is that just chance? Or, or is there a concerted effort to say, hey, Paul fans, you've been uh, insulting Peter and his fans. Uh, maybe you shouldn't because God seemed to be working through him in the same way he worked with your favorite. Uh, you uh, you uh, Peter fans who hate Paul, maybe you shouldn't because he's a lot like your guy. And so it's kind of a fictional attempt to get them together. So if you're saying, let's rethink Paul, maybe he is an apostle, maybe he's Saint Paul. What are you going to do with the Simon Magus story? Well, it's too good to, to leave out. But what say we split the character into Jekyll and Hyde? So we're going to have the story where Peter rebuffs Paul for seeking to pay for apostolic recognition. Uh, but we're, we don't want to put Paul in a bad light anymore. So let's say that was another guy, Simon Magus. Yeah, why not? So uh, you've got Simon Peter and the anti-Simon. And this goes on, I'll be done with this in a minute. Um, this goes on in later into the second century where you have uh, another text, part of the pseudo-Clementine recognitions. Uh, and in, in this, you have Peter arguing with Simon Magus. And what Simon says is like what Paul says in the New Testament, you're not saved through keeping the Torah. God didn't even give the Torah. It was angels who gave it, which is just what we read in Galatians. And, uh, and so don't worry, don't keep the law. And Peter says to him, what are you talking about? Where do you get this? Uh, and he says, well, Jesus appeared to me and revealed it. And Peter says, look, if you were really called by Jesus, you'd agree with us. We were with him. We know what he said. You're just having hallucinations. How is that uh, verifiable? And, and Simon says, oh, no, you, you got this exactly wrong. Uh, 
You know how easy it is to hear somebody teach and misconstrue it. What did he say? Blessed are the cheesemakers? Yeah, but if you have a vision, you have intuitive certainty. So I'm closer to the truth than you are. And you think, this sounds an awful lot like Paul versus the Twelve. And, and so the theory is that's what it actually was. And you had the same thing that happened in the book of Acts. They're really taught, they have a story about Paul, but they disguise it as Simon Magus. And, and then both of them start doing miracles in a competition. So, and, and there's more to it as well, but this all seems much too close to be sheer uh, accident. And I go along with F.C. Bauer and more recently a contemporary of, of mine, Hermann Dettering, uh, who said, yeah, Paul was Simon Magus. Different people called him different things, but it sure seems like it's the same guy. And, and again, there's more to it. I go into it in the book, but that's who I think Paul originally was. Uh, they probably originally called him Simon, and Paul was a kind of a sanctified alias. There's a little hint of that in Acts, where they're calling him Saul, until he meets up with a guy he converts whose name is Sergius Paulus. And then from there, uh, from there on out, he's referred to as Paul, as if that's not originally the guy's name. Uh, so it's it's a complicated mess, I admit, but if, if one is patient, it does start making sense. That's all extremely interesting. Let me ask you a question. As a whole, how do you feel about the Pauline epistles in the 66-book canon? Actually, could you hold that, Will? Will, just hold that before we get on. <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, I just want to one little thing more about Simon Magus, because I'm sure we got lots to talk about tonight. And we'll probably won't talk. We probably won't get back to Simon Magus at, at all tonight. So I just wanted uh, two more things about Simon. Um, if you uh, will, I'm sure that um, uh, Dr. Bob would know about this. Will, I'm not sure. Do you, are you familiar with the Clementine homilies, chapter 11? So yeah, I think so. that's the same. That's another version of the Clementine recognitions and that where they have the disputes with Peter and Simon, who really seems to be Paul. Yeah. So, Will, uh, like chapter 35, where uh, I think it's, um, what's it, Clement talking about Peter's instruction about Simon Magus. I, I'm i actually not familiar with that. No, Dr. No, Spencer I, I, hasn't you, sent me those homilies yet. Okay, you know what? If you guys don't mind, it's it's about a paragraph. I I would like to read that. Yeah, Please, because yeah. um, this is, from what I understand, this is Clement talking about Peter's instructions to him, and he mentions Simon, Simon Magus. So let me just pull that up and let's read it just before we get too far. So, sorry for kind of buttoning in there, Will, but no, I know we got we, there's. There's so much I know we want to talk about here tonight, and I just wanted to just make sure this is all tied up before we get into another topic. Okay, so this is, for those of you who are taking notes, this is the Clementine, Clementine Homilies, Homily 11, Chapter 35. So, and this is what it says, Beware of False Prophets. 
Then after three months were fulfilled, he ordered me to fast for several days, and then he brought me to the fountains that are near to the sea, and baptized me in an ever-flowing water. Thus, therefore, when our brethren rejoiced at my God-gifted regeneration, not many days after, he turned to the elders in, in presence of all the church and charged them, saying, quote, Our Lord and prophet who has sent us declare to us that the wicked one, having disputed with him forty days and having prevailed nothing against him, promised that he would send apostles from amongst his subjects to deceive. Wherefore, above all, remember to shun. Oh, this is awesome. I love this. Remember, this is, uh, remember to shun apostle or teacher or prophet who does not first accurately compare his preaching with that of James. So, in other words, in other words, if you are, uh, if if you if your teaching is not on par with James, you're out of here. James is James is like the 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 canon or the like the the rules the stick here that they use to measure by. Hmm. So I'll just say it again. Remember to shun apostle or teacher or prophet who does not first accurately compare his preaching with that of James, who was called the brother of my Lord, and to whom was entrusted to administer the church of the Hebrews in Jerusalem. And that even though he came to you with witnesses, lest the wickedness which disputed 40 days with the Lord and prevailed nothing should afterwards, like lightning falling from heaven upon the earth, send a preacher to your injury. As now he has sent Simon among us, preaching under the pretense of truth in the name of the Lord and sowing error. Wherefore, he who has sent us said, Many shall come to me in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. So that I just that was really on my heart just to read that. And that's very, I think that it's just so, to me, it's so awesome that according to Clement, Peter taught him that this is... You know, if there's anybody that preaches against the teachings of James, like Simon did, <laughs> you are to shun uh, that that apostle or that teacher. And I find it so amazing. I always knew James was my favorite New Testament book for a reason. Yeah, we're, we're not even sure it's supposed to be that James, though uh, if it just says James, chances are it's the one people would think of first. Uh, could be and it, it does it sound it's full of Judaism and Stoicism which was not unusual at the time uh, and uh, so could have been uh, from uh, uh, from uh, James the Just as they call so him. one more question before I turn a will loose on you there dr. Bob and that is um, you you mentioned that you have a lot more of this information in one of your books about Simon Magus which book is that? Uh, that's uh, The Amazing Colossal Apostle. That's a chapter called The Secret of Simon Magus. Interesting. I definitely need to get a copy of that one. You said that's on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Go ahead, Will. All right. So I'm just curious how you feel about 
the Pauline epistles as a whole and their relation to the New Testament? Well, they're the core of the New Testament uh, because it, it appears, I think this is widely accepted now, um, the, the idea that Originally, the emerging Catholic Church, which I like to say is like Catholic with a small c, it's the thing that grow into Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess uh, this is probably what Bart Ehrman calls proto-Orthodoxy. I, I kind of prefer Ernst Kesemann's um, uh, term, free Catholic, Catholic Catholicismus, uh, early or nascent Catholicism. And, uh, okay, um, they quoted sayings attributed to Jesus, and uh, they had uh, the so-called apostolic tradition, uh, which is pretty much like a summary of, of uh, beliefs that you find in the second century Apostles' Creed, and in similar summaries in both Irenaeus and Tertullian in the second century, uh, kind of all very similar, these summary of basic uh, doctrines. So this is the beginning of the Catholic view of scripture and tradition, but what was the scripture? It was uh, the Old Testament, uh, and they, especially in Greek, since most of the Christians were Greek speakers, and they read this as if it were all about Jesus. Of course, a lot of it they couldn't really use for that purpose, but a lot of these out-of-context uh, predictions and prophecies and things that they considered typology and allegories about Jesus, uh, they, in a, as, as um, Randall Helms in his book Gospel Fictions says, it's like they rewrote the Old Testament by rereading it. Though uh, later, in fact, I think they actually rewrote it because you can take virtually every gospel story and trace it back to an Old Testament prototype that it was probably based on. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Um, so they had the Old Testament of scripture read through Christian lenses and they had some sayings supposedly by Jesus. Uh, well, uh, Marcion said um, that uh, he didn't buy this. Uh, he believed that there were two gods and that in uh, the Pauline epistles, Paul taught this. Uh, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, he says, whenever the old covenant is read, uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. What God are you talking about there? Uh, wh why would uh, uh, the, the creator God uh, do that? Well, like Gnostics, Marcion believed there were essentially two deities. Uh, there was the Hebrew God, the creator of the material world, and the uh, the one who gave the Torah to Moses and so on, the God of Judaism. Uh, Marcion said, this God is not wicked, but he's unforgiving and a pretty rough customer. Uh, look at all the stuff he does in the Old Testament. Still, he's he's not a devil, but he's a pretty rough guy. And But uh, Jesus appeared 
as the son and representative of a hitherto unsuspected deity, his father. And uh, his father was not the lawgiver, not the creator, but a God of, of total love. And uh, he, uh, Jesus represented him. And this is why Jesus says in a couple of, in Matthew and Luke at one point, um, uh, let's see, um, he says, uh, no one knows the Father except the Son, and any to whom the Son is willing to reveal him. Like, how could a Jewish prophet say this in a Jewish context? Nobody has known God? Well, he can't be referring to Jehovah. Uh, and uh, it's like the Gospel of John says, no one has ever seen God. What, what about Isaiah and Moses and so forth? What are you referring to? Uh, well, Marcionism. Okay, so he said that Jesus was trying to get across that this God would forgive and save, uh, and he wanted to offer adoption by his heavenly Father. But he had to make a deal with the Creator to uh, purchase them as if they were hostages by his death on the cross. You know, it says that he gave his life a ransom for many. A ransom? What, what, what would that imply? Well, that somebody was, ha was holding them captive and that Jesus' life was somehow deemed a price of redemption, of buying the freedom of a slave or, or uh, freeing a hostage. And so... But the, the problem was Jesus' disciples, the 12, as Mark portrays them, were a bunch of dullards who understood nothing he said. One of them eventually denies Jesus. Another betrays him to the authorities. Marcion said, do you think that these guys should be the figureheads of Christianity? No, no, that's why Jesus appeared to Paul. Uh, he needed somebody who was not an idiot and would understand the newness of his revelation. And that's what we're reading in the Pauline letters. The law is over with. You needn't bother with that. You're saved by grace through faith. And that's why all the references in the beginning of the letters are um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ and, and, the, and his father. Uh, and, and so he says, yes, Marcion had a different God. He, Jesus started a new religion. He, he didn't, he wasn't anti-Semitic or even anti-Jewish. He just, it's like uh, he was saying, you know, our, we don't come out of Hinduism, right? That That's a whole, that's somebody else's religion. Let's not try to co-opt it. In the same way, Judaism simply is not Christianity. It's not evil. Jews are not evil. Uh, their God will send a Messiah to, to liberate their nation. Sure, sure, that's fine. But that wasn't Jesus. Jesus isn't going to do that. Uh, he is the founder of Christianity. And given that, we, the the uh, Old Testament is none of our business. It doesn't predict Jesus in any literal fashion. Uh, it it tells you you got to keep the law or you're cooked. Uh, well, um, none of that is pertains to us. Well, we do need a scripture though. 
what's it going to be? Well, obviously, the writings of Paul, the only apostle who understood. Now, did Marcion collect letters that were actually by Paul, or um, did he uh, uh, did he uh, write them? I, I've got something. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard to say. Uh, there's some reason to think he was the collector of these epistles, but there's also believe he wrote them. Uh, and uh, I, I tend to think that it's it's still kind of a mystery because it does seem like different Paulinists added to these things. We the the ones that the church fathers were reading his Marcion's versions of the Pauline epistles are shorter. But I think they there must have been a still earlier form. But uh, what what the I think Polycarp of Smyrna in particular, who opposed Marcion, he seems to be the one that said, uh, "Okay, that's not a bad idea to have a uniquely Christian scripture. Let's just add it to the Old Testament." instead of you know substituting for the old testament and how about paul's letters well with a little editing uh, they they wouldn't be so bad uh, and so various sections were added to kind of domesticate and sanitize paul for a catholic readership and then eventually the three pastoral epistles first and second timothy and titus were written wholesale by catholic christians and probably intended to supplant the Marcionite collection of, of 10 Pauline epistles, but eventually they were added on. And uh, then Marcion had a gospel, and I think probably was the first to write a gospel, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whoever they were, and John later, added to his gospel. And there are various sort of technical reasons to to uh, to show why that's very likely true. I, but I'd, I'd have to refer you to Marcus Vincent's book, Marcion and the Date of the Synoptic Gospels. But it, I think it's a powerful argument. So he had the nucleus. In fact, it was he called it the New Testament, and it was made of these two sections: the Evangelion, the Gospel and the Apostolicon, the Book of the Apostle, with the, the ten epistles that had been written so far. And the Catholics, with Polycarp, decided, okay, that's good stuff, but let's add some Gospels with a lot more material. Uh, let's add some more epistles, as if we have epistles by some of the twelve. Because nobody knew who James and Jude were. The, the two epistles of Peter are obviously uh, forgeries. Uh, the the so-called epistles of John are anonymous. There, there's no name on them. Uh, and so he he's apparently the one that said, well, maybe it was John, maybe it was Peter, and James the Just, and Jude the brother of James, and uh, so on. Uh, and uh, so he created the New Testament but ours that, that survived with the 27 books is a kind of an um, heavily supplemented and, and edited um, New Testament. Both versions are quite fascinating. Um, I love them both. 
but that's the relation. That was the, the epistles were the core of Marcion's New Testament, and then everybody else's. So, do you reject, accept, or take the Pauline epistles with a grain of salt? Yeah, as as um, R. G. Collingwood, the great historian, said, some things turn out to be propaganda rather than history, but pro even propaganda has a history. So if you're uh, if you're looking if you're trying to separate what Polycarp and others added to it. That's worth doing in its own right, because if you're interested in the New Testament, there are various ways of studying it, and, and that's pretty interesting to compare what's been added to what was originally there. They're both quite fascinating. Uh, and so it, it may be the history of propaganda, but uh, you know, once you're into this kind of critical study, the notion that the Bible is the authoritative and infallible standard for faith and practice, that just becomes ridiculous. Uh, it, not stupid, but, but inappropriate. It's like people thinking the Bible is a word-for-word -word inspired magic book. That's of no help in understanding it. It makes it impossible to understand. Uh, and so I, I am I've given my life to the study of the Bible. I, I don't think it has any authority, though it has great wisdom, and I'm fascinated by it. But it, it's not authority insofar as it rings true to me, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. So as far as modern-day Christianity goes, where do you think they have or have not gone wrong? Well, uh, this boils down to the Protestant delusion of sola scriptura. Uh, Catholics were always overt, admitting that, yes, the Bible is important, but the apostolic tradition tells us what the Bible really means because, of course, apostles must have had many things to say that they didn't have occasion to record in letters, but the church fathers preserved that. Martin Luther said, uh, you know, these centuries later, he said, that does sound good. That, that sounds reasonable, but let's face it, too much water has gone under the bridge. There's no way to know what the apostles may actually have taught. So you just have to bracket that stuff, and the, the best you've got is what they wrote. And he thought, of course, that Jesus said all this stuff, the apostles wrote all this stuff, which it, it, criticism was just getting, critical studies just getting off the ground. Um, so he thought that scripture was clear enough. He called it the perspicuity of scripture. Anybody can, who's literate can understand it. You just have to try not to be anachronistic about it. You try to learn about the ancient culture and you learn the original languages. But if you do that, anybody can really understand this. The Catholic Church said, uh, Marty, I hate to tell you, but if you push that, every man is going to be his own pope. And sure enough, that's what happened, because it's not that clear. And that's why there are tens of thousands of Protestant denominations today. They think they're just going with the Bible. We just believe in that Bible, whatever it says. 
But, but it's obvious that no, they are interpreting the Bible according to the tradition of their founders, whether it was Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, the, uh, the Anabaptists, the Campbellites, all think that, oh yeah, we're just reading it right <coughs> out of the Bible, but they're not. Uh, and that's why they're always saying, well, here's here's a difficulty in the Bible, but I think we can uh, harmonize it. Or, or one of my favorite ones, well, all right, here's an apparent contradiction. Yeah, it does kind of look like James and Paul don't agree, but, but they must have agreed. Uh, they're probably up there having coffee in heaven right now. And James is saying, boy, you know, I wish I hadn't put it that way because, of course, I agreed with Paul. Well, if you're going to take that approach, just uh, pick whichever one you like and, and pretend the other one says the same thing because you're controlling it by your church's tradition. Well, given that that is, is a delusion, it doesn't work, you're not doing what you think you're doing, that really undermines uh, any coherent idea of biblical authority. But by the same token, the the faith of the laity in today's churches is based on their church tradition so it really doesn't matter what the bible says it's just a source of proof texts for whatever their pastor tells them i i guess i'm oversimplifying it a little but i think that essentially is what's going on they could dig up the bones of jesus or a new gospel as they do in many novels and movies it wouldn't make any difference. People are not going to change their mind on anything. They'll they'll wish it away. And I mean, they have discovered other gospels, right? <laughs> They're not in the Bible. We don't care. So nothing really would be a shock to the system. It, it's only individuals who realize this doesn't really add up. What is really going on here? Uh, for people like that, they're they're like the like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, "What do I have to do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus, how about the commandments, right? And he says, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know. I have those ever since I was a kid." And Jesus says, "Well, if you would be perfect, here's what you can do." That that's kind of the the Gnostic attitude that um, there's no point in rocking the boat of of good. Um, People try better uh, with the Bible and Jesus. That, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, why upset their apple cart? It's what Paul calls the weaker brethren. Why, why stir up trouble? You, you're just going to provoke them into persecuting you. There's no point in that for them or for us. But if you do spot somebody that is dissatisfied and knows that there must be something more, bingo that's the person you can you can try to share this with and they won't think you're nuts that's been my experience for years so bob um let me i hate to put it in this terms but would you identify as a christian would you say you're a christian um i kind of flirt with what thomas altizer used to call christian atheism I do love the Christian tradition, the orthodoxy, the heresy, uh, the whole thing is is fascinating and, and and lovable in many ways. But there's an overarching movement in history 
that Nietzsche chronicled, uh, where uh, a kind of a vanguard of humanity came to realize that the objective reference point people thought they had, God and his will, died. Uh, where it, it, some realized this is not a viable concept. I'm afraid it's up to us to, to decide our values. And that the, the death of God on the cross is, is kind of an analogy for that, the maturity of the human race for those who are willing to, to go that far. And that the, 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 the divinity is present in a kind of a latent view, much like in Mahayana Buddhism, that you will find nirvana within samsara. And so Altizer's Christian atheism, I, I would identify with that, but I, I would also tell people, knowing what you mean by it, I, I can't claim to be a Christian. I know they, they're not going to accept what I, they won't accept my definition, so. So you, you accept Christ, but you don't identify as a Christian. Would that be a safe way to put it? Well, I'm not sure there was a historical Jesus even. Uh, but even if there was, uh, some years ago, I realized, you know, I, I don't feel obliged to obey Jesus. I, I merely agree with Jesus. And on some ethical matters, I agree more with Epicurus or Aristotle. So I, I'm a Jesus fan, but I'm not sure there was a Jesus except this literary character. And I, I don't take everything attributed to him as binding, even if he really did say it. So that I, I a Christian would have to say, yes, I'm a disciple. I want to obey what Jesus said. I'm I'm selective, and I I think that puts me beyond a, a standard Christian identity. That's an interesting response from a Bible scholar. Oh, there are plenty who just would say oh, I'm an atheist, like Bart Ehrman. Uh, he uh, he just unavowedly uh, is, is an atheist and doesn't care who knows it. And there's plenty of others. Interesting. So why do you think Paul is in the Bible? Well, because of the success of, of the Marcionite church in the second century, it, it spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire and was eventually suppressed uh, after Constantine took over. But if not for that, I uh, think that uh, we probably wouldn't even have heard of Paul. And uh, it, well, if you look at um, a lot of standard Christian doctrine, it hardly has anything to do with Paul anyway. They they quote him here and there, but the thing most people know from Paul is probably the love chapter of First Corinthians thirteen. Well, it, who who knows who wrote that? It needn't have been a historical Paul. It's just a profound poem, uh, and it has that value. Whoever wrote it. Uh, but uh, I think we wouldn't know Paul if it weren't for Marcion. The, so, the early church with the 12 got along fine without him. So would it be correct to say your answer is the reason why Paul is in the Bible is because of Marcion? Marcion put Paul in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, literally. 
that he's the one that first created a New Testament, and it was built around the Pauline letters. The the uh, Catholics sort of borrowed that from him and then added some more. So literally, he put a Bible. That's quite a statement, knowing what uh, some of the early early church fathers said about Marcion. Mm. But just look at the, the Apostolic Fathers. I read a book long ago called The Doctrine of Grace and the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, it's kind of uh, hard to find. Uh, one of the arguments of the Dutch radical critics against the Pauline epistles being authentic products of Paul in the first century is that they're in the second century, uh, in so-called mainstream Christianity, you don't really find any trace of, of Pauline theology. Um, the uh, like Marcion was the first one, and I guess Valentinus the Gnostic, who who claimed to be a, a sort of a grandson disciple of Paul. He was one away. He said he had been taught by Theudas, who was a, a disciple of Paul. Was that true? Who knows? But um, it, it's like. Uh, except for the Gnostics and Simon Magus, you don't really find any Paulinism. And, and apparently the neglect was intentional. It, it's difficult, like it's not clear that the few second century writers we have were even familiar with the Pauline letters. They say odd things. They Like uh, the anonymous writer of the so-called First Clement, uh, he, he uh, writes to the Corinthians and says, Look at the epistle Paul wrote to you. He only knew of one. Uh, Polycarp's epistle of the Philippians, he says, well, Paul praises you in all of his letters. How many Philippian letters did he think there were? Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's like they, they weren't really that familiar with it. And there's so little quoting until Irenaeus and Tertullian toward the end of the century when they're responding to Marcion and trying to refute Paul by quoting Marcion, then they figure they can co-opt him, and then you start having um, quotes from him. But it's as if they were studiously avoiding this guy because uh, look who likes him. Uh, the only people that were Paulinists were Gnostics and Encrates and Marcionites, and they said, oh, no, uh, if, if they're reading Paul, we don't want him. So wasn't it uh, Justin Martyr that, I mean, he wrote a lot, like he wrote a lot uh, mm -hmm. in the second, in the, in, excuse me, in the second century, and he mm -hmm. did not mention Paul at all. Is it, is that, am I getting it right there? I believe that's correct. He certainly never quotes him, but I believe he didn't even mention him. Though he does know about Marcion, he, he tries to refute him at length. It's so interesting that Paul is not mentioned at all, or rarely, spare, sparingly in the second century, and mm. in the first century for that matter. Mm -hmm. And again, knowing, like I've, I did a little bit of research before about how the early church fathers viewed Marcion. Like they called, like, I think it was, I think it was Justin Martyr that said that like he had, he had the, he had the serpent in his mouth and someone else, he, he was full of demons and, and Polycarp said he was the son of Satan. Mm -hmm. And this is the man, what you said, Marcion is the one who put Paul in the, in the Bible. Yeah. 
Yeah, in fact, Polycarp, who hated him, and there's this story that the two of them met up when Marcion went to Rome, uh, and he he saw him and he says, do you recognize me? Apparently meaning, do you recognize my authority? Uh, but uh, Polycarp, oh, I recognize you. I know the son of the devil when I see him. Uh, and uh, and uh, so that yeah, he would have been the one. And David Trobish makes a very good argument for this in his book. I think the first edition of the New Testament, and then uh, a couple of articles that follow that up in in uh, Free Inquiry magazine, where he says it looks like some person, some individual. Ecclesiastic prepared the what became the standard edition of the Christian Greek Bible with the Septuagint Old Testament and with the uh, the twenty seven book New Testament, and he then goes into showing that the of the people we know of the the candidate that really fits this uh, is uh, is Polycarp. People had already thought that, um, I mean, some scholars for a long time thought that Polycarp might be the author of the pastoral epistles uh, without looking at this bigger question. And it's interesting that uh, there may be little clues in there. Um, he, uh, he um, the, the so-called Paul says to uh, Timothy or Titus, um, uh, bring the cloak I left at Carpus and, and the scrolls. Well, that could be a coincidence, like, you know, Shakespeare, did he write one of the Psalms because Shake is in this place? And it, it could be bogus. But then uh, Bulkman delineated a lot of stuff in the Gospel of John that he said appears to have been added by some unknown person whom he called the ecclesiastical redactor because without this stuff, John's gospel looks pretty Gnostic. It has realized eschatology, like it's not going to be a future resurrection. It happens now in baptism. And, um, there's no material sacraments. No, you, you're just... Uh, the you you just have you're partaking of wisdom's feast like in proverbs well that somebody added uh in the bread of life discourse uh, the these these things that are obviously sacramental unless you chew the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you for my my Flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. I don't know how you can get out of uh, a, a a real presence view of the sacraments in that verse. I mean, it seems very clear. And uh, so, one of those additions of the ecclesiastical redactor would have been the true vineness, uh, which would obviously seem to be about the Eucharist again. And uh, what does he say? Whoever dwells in me will bear much fruit, which in Greek is uh, polycarpos. Uh, and uh, so you, you, who knows, right? It's impossible to be sure, but there are all these odd clues that seem to back this up. 
and you can go further. You can say, who is Theophilus to whom the Gospel of Luke was was addressed? Well, there is a good argument that that was Theophilus of Antioch, a second century bishop, uh, and uh, whom Polycarp knew, and uh, and that Polycarp may have padded out the Marcionite Gospel into our so-called Luke, and then added Acts, addressing both to his colleagues. He says, you, you know the story, but let me tell you the definitive version. Uh, it, it, I, my eyes have really been opened in the last several years reading this stuff. Uh, it's shocking in a way. So if I, if I, can, if I understand you uh, correctly, you're, st- you're saying that Polycarp could have taken Marcion's Luke and, and changed it. Mm-hmm. And and written the entire acts or changed acts. Uh, well, probably the uh, this gets even trickier. But um, I guess Trobish would say he probably wrote the whole book of Acts. But there's still a few odd things you have to explain because uh, the vocabulary is sometimes different for the same idea uh, between the the first half of Acts in the second half, and it seems odd that the same writer would, would change. C.C. Uh, um, Torrey, writing earlier in the, in the 20th century, had this fascinating theory. He said that it, you could really divide acts into first and second acts, that first acts would have been written in Aramaic, and of course we have it in Greek, but he says it looks like translation Greek. Uh, it's like uh, in not the, the first language of this writer. It's competent, but it's kind of stiff and so forth. And it ends at the end of chapter 15 with the Apostolic Council, which sort of is the, here's the solution to our problem with Jews and Gentiles and the Torah. But um, Tori said the Greek is rather different in chapters 16 through 28. And so he said he thought the translator of first acts decided to continue it on uh, to the implied death of Paul uh, in in second acts. And I to me, that sounds pretty good. So it gets even trickier combining this with what Probish says, it would mean that he, that uh, Polycarp had padded out Acts as he did Luke. It's just uh, it's sort of a different pattern. He just added a bunch of chapters onto the end, whereas in the Gospel, well, he added a couple of chapters on the beginning because Marcion certainly had no nativity story. Uh, it started with when Jesus descends from heaven and goes to Capernaum. Uh, it says Jesus came down to Capernaum. Marcion thought that meant he descended bodily from heaven as an adult and uh, and so forth and the various other things. One little example that I love that, that shows this Catholicizing alteration of, the go- of Marcion's gospel, which he didn't call Luke, by the way, just called it the gospel. In, um, at least in... Um, yeah, I think both uh, Mark and Matthew have the new wine and old wineskins parable. 
uh, there, you know, why don't you guys fast like the rest of us Jewish groups do? And he says, well, look, uh, you, you don't put new wine, which is apparently his teaching of the kingdom of God, etc., into old wine skins because the, the wine expands as it ferments and the old skins have reached their breaking point. Don't put new wine in there or they'll explode. Uh, well, uh, Luke has that. But then he reverses it by adding this incongruous sentence, but no one drinking the old wine wants the new. He's the old is better. Now, what can that mean? Except it's a Marcionite repudiation. I mean, an anti-Marcionite repudiation of this idea the old stuff is, is outmoded. It's not for us. It's like Marcion was saying, I mean, I think he rewrote a lot of these Old Testament stories as Jesus stories because he was the first we know of to have a narrative gospel. Well, he didn't agree with putting new wine into old wineskins, like trying to reinterpret the, the Septuagint as a Christian book, but he apparently was in favor of putting old wine into new skins. Uh, which is what he did by rewriting the Septuagint stories of Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, etc. And uh, so I, I think that's what he did, and he he is not has not been given sufficient credit for not only organizing the Bible but writing a lot of it. Fascinating. So I've been keeping an eye on the the comments a little bit. We're, we got a question. I'm actually curious about your take on it too. How do you feel about the Old Testament? What are your what are your feelings on that? Do you think it's the word of God or do you have a different opinion? Yeah, it's saying it's the word of God is just like putting a halo on top of a guy in a painting. It really does not tell you anything about the text and actually puts blinders on the, the reader because you start saying, well, wait a minute, this is problematical. How, how come it contradicts? Well, I guess it really doesn't. There must be some way of uh, jury rigging the thing to make it look like it says the same thing. Uh, it doesn't. I, I don't think there's a coherent theology in the Old Testament, like von Rod and other scholars tried to show. It just doesn't work. It's an artificial imposition on the text. It's a scrapbook of ancient Israelite traditions from different perspectives, so that you have contradicting law in different law codes that have simply been placed together side by side, so nobody, once the, the, the different traditional uh, tradition transmitters came together they couldn't leave anybody's favorite stuff out so uh, there's one right after the other and this is why the rabbis in, in future centuries did just what jesus did with the divorce thing you know they say is divorce legit uh, and jesus says well, what did moses say oh he said yeah you, the guy could give his wife a bill of divorcement and jesus says well yeah i know but that wasn't really the will of god if you want to see that take a look at genesis uh what god has put together let no one put asunder um that that the you know what was he doing was he denying scripture no the rabbis did that all the time they'd say gee we got two contradictory verses here let's say this one negates that they weren't in any trouble for it why'd they have to do that 
because there are, are different writers with different bits and pieces. And sometimes it's just in there, I think, for antiquarian interest. Uh, let's put together a whole mess of proverbs. Uh, let's, uh, let's put together a whole bunch of the psalms used in the Jerusalem temple. Um, some of them are based on Egyptian texts. Uh, some are northern Israelite. Some are southern Judean. Uh, you got two versions of the same thing here and there. The prophets, uh, they, I don't think that they, those books are transcripts of sermons given by Jeremiah and Isaiah. They seem to be literary works. There's interesting stuff done on that to show how, number one, it's almost impossible to imagine anybody could remember that stuff word for word. Uh, and uh, number two, uh, there are stylistic and, and other uh, factors that imply a single editorial hand in all of these. So it, I view the, the Old Testament as very different than I did even a few years ago. Uh, there's virtually no history in it. You, you, with Omri and some of these, these Israelite kings late in the day, okay, you're dealing with historical figures there, but there's no way to know if the narratives about them are true. And uh, archaeology has really destroyed any historical credibility for the Old Testament. Like there's, there's not a stitch of uh, evidence for the exodus from Egypt, where there would have to be loads of archaeological evidence. What, did God send angels with vacuum cleaners to clean it up as if it were like a, you know, a ticker tape parade the next day. Um, th there's no evidence of Solomon's temple or David's palace. How come? Uh, did, again, did the angels come down with sledgehammers pounded to dust and vacuum that too? It, it, this is, uh, it just can't be true with, with the void of evidence. But who cares? As uh, Jacob Neusner, a rabbi and one of the greatest authorities on ancient Judaism, he said in an article that uh, it doesn't matter if the Old Testament, and I would say the New, uh, is historically accurate, because what is the relevance of it, historical or not? Is it not to enable the reader to discern the signs of the times, uh, to say, hey, I think we've seen this before. Something is happening, and uh, this happened uh, in Persia with Esther and Mordecai. Maybe there's a lesson for us there. Or my favorite example, it, to me, it's quite suspicious that the government and, and business tries to force everyone to get these vaccines. Like, why are you that concerned that you're going to have people and all that? I start thinking of Revelation chapter 13. Uh, those who wouldn't take the mark of the beast of the government uh, could not buy or sell unless they you know, took the thing. I, I mean, this is, it's not like this, the, the vaccine scenario is a literal fulfillment of a prediction someone made. The, the original setting is, is fantasy. Uh, but the thing is, they constructed a kind of historical paradigm that sheds light on circumstances, like Jews um, with the rise of Hitler. You know, they, they, if they said, and a lot of people did, oh, Hitler is the Antichrist, 
Well, not literally. You know, the world didn't end when he was defeated, but that's a relevant way to understand what was going on. Uh-oh, what are we going to do? Uh, th this is a serious situation. How serious? Take a look at this biblical thing. Maybe we better think twice. I mean, to me, that's the relevance of it, uh, plus the psychological wisdom of, of a lot of it. Um, but I, I don't think any of the Old Testament really is historical, and it wouldn't matter were or weren't. The idea of the um, marriage and divorce thing, I, I look at it like it's almost like um, the story of King Saul. It's like the story goes that God said, no, you don't want a king. It's not it's really, it's not my will that you, that you have a king. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm your king. What are you doing asking for another king? That more or less. And they're like, no, we want a mm -hmm. king. No, okay, I'm giving it to you. If you want it, I'm giving it to you. It's like, it's like the divorce. It's not my will, but if you want it, here's how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. That's how I, it's almost like in Romans chapter one, like, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, even though like it's not that's not his, you know, the way it presents right. it, you know. Um, uh, but let me ask you, I want to I want to, you know, since um, we have this advertised as a I want to talk a little bit more about Paul. Hmm. Um, Paul, I've heard that some scholars believe that Paul is they don't believe that Paul was from Tarsus. What do you think about that? Well, for some reason, St. Jerome said that he was from, oh, where was it? Somewhere in Galilee. Uh, and uh, he could have meant maybe he was raised there, but it kind of sounds like uh, he thought that that's where Paul was originally from. Um, but uh, but we know he, he had... Uh, uh, Matthew and Luke with their nativity stories, so uh, it's it's hard. And, and in fact, he Saint Jerome lived for a while in a cave in Bethlehem, where some thought Jesus had been born. So I I don't know what to make of that. Uh, it's it's very puzzling. But uh, if there was a Paul, it would make uh, sense if he was born in Tarsus, because Tarsus was a very Hellenized city, and uh, the Mithraic religion uh, seems to have been born there. And uh, in some ways, he echoes that. There are, there are what surely seem to be mystery religion elements in um, the Pauline epistles, and he, a historical Paul, would have to have been acquainted with them in Tarsus. So I'm not sure why they think he wasn't, except that it may have something to do with this thing with Rome. I understand that some, I've heard some uh, Jewish rabbis talk about this too. It's like that they don't believe that Paul knew much Hebrew at all, that he wasn't very Jewish in that sense because of, well, he wasn't even from a Jewish city. So, you know, if, if he was from Tarsus. Um, and his writings too were very much like a Greco-Roman kind of thing, if you know what I mean. Yet this is difficult because as a conservative, um, uh, Martin Hengel wrote this huge authoritative book uh, called Judaism and Hellenism, showing that uh, Judaism, not only in the diaspora, but even in Palestine, had been thoroughly Hellenized by New Testament times. Because, you know, with the Maccabees and all that, uh, it once uh, some 
Muslim Jews were persuaded to convert to the Dionysian religion, that was it for Mattathias and, and his sons, and they started the Maccabean Revolt. But up to that point, there were a whole lot of them that embraced a, a lot of uh, Hellenism. And part of that was, for instance, the idea of a rabbi having a circle of disciples. That seems to have been borrowed from uh, the Greek philosophical schools. Uh, the allegorizing of the Old Testament seems to have been borrowed from the Greek Stoics. And, and uh, the use of Greek, uh, in, and especially in the diaspora, uh, you know, self-evident there. Well, um, Chaim Maccabee, in his book, Paul and Hellenism, zeroes in on just what you're saying, that he doesn't sound like he had some sort of rabbinic education with Gamaliel, as Acts says he did. Because you got to remember that Acts is Catholicizing. It's, it's trying to um, draw Paul into the Jewish orbit to get Jewish Christians not to hate him anymore. Uh, and uh, so it's not clear that that's really true, that he was uh, taught by Gamaliel, and it doesn't sound like it. I remember reading um, W.D. Davies' supposed classic book, Paul and Rabbinic Judaism, where he shows what light uh, rabbinic studies uh, cast on the Pauline letters, and I kept waiting to see something, and, and he has, as I read it, it's virtually nothing. Uh, the closest he comes to saying Paul's kind of like the rabbis because they believed in the evil imagination with which people are born. And then it is supplemented a few years later with the good imagination. It's like the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other. Uh, but uh, that's not what Paul says uh, in Romans. It's a, a gnaw prevails in his members and he can't do what's right until he's, he comes to Christ. So I, I think that this was a big failure to try to say, well, he, he must have been a rabbinical student. He doesn't sound like it. And Maccabee also points out that things that are, are suggested to have been part of, hell, of, uh, of, of Jewish lore, like when he says the rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness was Christ, well, that that's a, uh, I'm sure you know that story, that um, he's referring to the fact that Moses twice brings water out of a rock for the Israelites in very different places. And so they speculated and said, did, did he uh, speak to or strike various rocks? Or was it the same rock that rolled along after? The, the same one. And uh, he's referring to that, oh, now, that, look, that's rabbinic lore. No, that's widely known in diaspora Judaism because it's mentioned in those Greeks' uh, written works. And, and uh, he says, I'll tell you what Paul's Old Testament exegesis sounds like. It sounds like Nag Hammadi retellings of Genesis. He sounds more Gnostic. Uh, and uh, so I think uh, it's it's just, I did a book recently called uh, Judaizing Jesus, where I, I say that I, I love the notion of ecumenical dialogue between Judaism and Christianity. I love both religions, uh, but I cannot help thinking that the current rage among New Testament scholars to say, Square one, we have to assume Jesus was a pretty much orthodox 
rabbinic Jew of the Second Temple period. Uh, and everything he said that squared with that, well, he really did say it and he was really a rabbi. I can't help thinking that they're really just crafting a theologically amenable Jesus so they can say, okay, let's all gather. Uh, Jesus was really a rabbi even for us, so, you know, let's drop the Christology. I, I think that's what's happened with Paul, too. They're trying to Judaize Paul, and maybe Maccabee was right, that you're dealing either with a thoroughly Hellenized Jew or maybe the old Ebionites were correct, and Paul wasn't even a Jew, right? This is a very ancient tradition that says Paul was a Gentile who uh, was enamored of the daughter of the high priest of Israel and was willing to convert to marry her. Uh, but uh, he either they, they refused to let him marry her, which sounds kind of bogus gossip, or he just couldn't hack it. It was the, the cultural mores were too alien, and so he, he quit and decided to, to do something else, and that's where I got involved with the Jesus bandwagon. Well, you hear that, and, and then you think of these passages in uh, first or second Corinthians where Paul says, uh, among Jews I was as a Jew, uh, among those under the law, I behaved as one under the law, though I'm not under the law, uh, except for the law of Christ, of course. And uh, and then among those without the law, I lived that way. Well, which was he originally? It's not at all clear. And uh, it makes you wonder about this Ebionite claim. Was he a, a failed Jewish convert? Because the way he talks of the law being a burden, it's difficult to imagine any kind of faithful Jew saying that, right? Jews have always said, we are lucky bastards having the, the covenant with Almighty God. The, the pagans are wandering in darkness. We have the light of the Torah. Think of it as a, a burden. They were raised in it. It was like they were fish in water. It's not a burden to them, but it seems like it was to Paul. Maybe he wasn't even a Jew. Uh, and the problem is all these things are big questions. Uh, I doubt that I will ever attain certainty on any of it. Will, you got any questions there? Uh, no, you have some very interesting takes on it. I'm not going to lie. I don't agree with everything that you've said, but sure. uh, it's very interesting to consider your point and the, the, um, the thought process you brought to the table. Well, that's all I ever try to do in writing or teaching. I don't want to make disciples of Christ, God forbid. Uh, I just want to be sort of a Socratic midwife and help people bring to bear on their own thinking and their own synthesis uh, with new perspectives and new information that they may not be familiar with. I don't care what they what they uh, believe or whatever. I'm just saying, here's some stuff you might want to think about. What you do with it is of no interest to me. Galatians, could you expound on the authorship? Was there any sections added? Who wrote it? Yeah, I, I think that uh, most of it is Marcionite and might even have been written by Marcion because he 
the, the thing about him bringing, about Paul bringing the contributions of the churches to Jerusalem and being rebuffed uh, sounds kind of like, well, not only the Simon Magus story in Acts, but what happened to Marcion, because he went to Rome. Uh, and he was a wealthy uh, ship owner and shipbuilder, and uh, he brought a huge amount of money to contribute to the church at Rome, and he put his hat in the ring to become the bishop of Rome. Well, at first they accepted the money, but then they talked about it and said, I don't agree with this guy's theology. And they said, I'm sorry, we, we can't really work with you. Here's the money back. Well, I wonder... Like in, in the Quran, you have some very similar. We have some surahs that speak about Muhammad being ridiculed by skeptics with various arguments and, and his rebuttals. And then we read Quranic stories about Abraham and Noah and Moses getting the same treatment. And it becomes pretty obvious that these Old uh, Testament characters in their adventures are modeled on what happened to Muhammad. I wonder if it's the same sort of a thing here. Uh, and Or if somebody else wrote it, maybe they're comparing Paul and Marcion. Then um, I think that the first, uh, most of the first couple of chapters uh, are Marcionite, but later because the book of Acts, as I say, appears to be written against Marcion and, and their various things. That's why the Holy Spirit tells Paul, hey, don't waste your time going to Pontus, because that's where Marcion's from, and they don't want to suggest there was any connection. Well, uh, it was anti-Marcionite, and so it's, it takes pains to say uh, that Paul made a beeline for Jerusalem to get the approval of those who were apostles previously. Well, that's directly rejected in the beginning of Galatians. He says, look, I'm not lying. I didn't go to Jerusalem immediately. I went out into the Nabataean desert uh, for three years. It's like, uh, it's like the, uh, he's, he's saying some is saying this about me, but it's not true. Don't believe it. Uh, that seems to be, uh, this is not my uh, discovery, but somebody wrote an article I read that made this seem very likely. So that would seem to be Marcionite. But then there are interpolations by Polycarp or whoever to erode the, um, the Marcionite character of it, for instance, when it says, um, God's, when the time had fully come, whatever, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, etc., etc. Now, wait a second, that sounds very odd. Talk about the presidential candidate, movie star, whoever. Are you going to start out by saying, uh, well, one thing we know about Johnny Depp or Joe Biden, he was born. He had a mother. 
who who would waste their breath on that? But if uh, if if there is somebody you're trying to refute who says Jesus wasn't born, he didn't have a mother, he descended from heaven one day. Oh, so we don't know. But but you have to wonder what the heck? What would make this make sense? Well, that sure would. And there are other things that look like attempts to to pad it out and and uh, vitiate the pro-Marcionite polemic in it. So I think you've got these three sources, most of it by Marcion, uh, the beginnings of it by um, a Marcionite apologist, and then various interpolations by uh, a, an early Catholic writer. Second Peter, authorship. Do you know who wrote Second Peter? some unnamed person in the mid-second century. Uh, this is filled with clues as if the guy was winking to the reader repeatedly. Uh, for one thing, uh, it says, um, it, it seems to borrow wholesale the epistle of Jude and uh, to cut out some non-canonical stuff implying Second Peter is the later one, no more Enoch, no more Assumption of Moses as in Jude. And, um, he uh, says that, well, you remember how uh, your apostles once predicted that in the last days scoffers will come, saying, there's this coming, he promised. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, the world's continued on the same way day after day. Wait a minute. You're supposed to be one of those guys, right? What do you mean in the old days they predicted what is happening now? What are you, 200 years old? Uh, it's like he, he let the mask slip. He forgot he was supposed to be Peter. Then he says, uh, I know uh, some people twist the letters of our beloved brother Paul. And some things in them are hard to understand and people twist them. Um, wait a second, you mean you and others have access to a collection of the Pauline epistles and you consider them scripture? He says uh, they, the unstable twist them as they do the other scriptures. You mean in Peter's lifetime, before 60-something AD, there was a collection of Pauline letters considered scripture? No way. It's an anachronism. And uh, there, the uh, the the Greek style, it, it, as a professor of mine said, it's, it's near Byzantine. It's totally different from the simpler Greek of First Peter, which is too sophisticated for some Galilean fishermen anyway. So it, there's just no reason to think that, um, that this is by Peter. I'll say that uh, Michael Green, a, an evangelical apologist who I, I have met and debated, and I have a lot of uh, fond respect for him, he wrote a book when he was a student uh, called Second Peter Reconsidered, and uh, it's worth reading. He, he does a valuable job of trying to defend Petrine authorship of Second Peter, but I just don't think it works. There's no way, I think, to overcome these problems. Plus, uh, nobody seems to think it odd that there are inauthentic third and fourth Peter letters 
One of them is, is from Nag Hammadi. One is um, in the pseudo-Clementines. There's a letter of Peter to James and a letter uh, of Peter to Philip. Well, and there, there are various things like the apocalypse of Peter, the preachings of Peter, the journeys of Peter, the acts of Peter, the gospel of Peter. No scholar thinks these could possibly be authentically Petrine. So what's the problem with uh, saying that, uh, for better reasons even, that uh, First and Second Peter are not authentic? This kind of holy forgery was quite common in the ancient world, and Bart Ehrman calls it forgery in a book, and he's that's justified, but he insists that, that that was held in ill favor in the ancient world. I don't think so. Uh, it was a kind of a known genre. There's letters attributed to Plato and Socrates that they didn't write. And nobody, it's like they're saying, what would he say if he were around today? And uh, so I, I don't think there's any shame in that. I don't think it's like a dismal hoax or anything of the sort. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, pseudonymous or anonymous material in the New Testament. Are there any uh, books of uh, Nag Hammadi you'd recommend? We got a question or a, a comment asking that. Well, the one that I think is is very helpful and not just interesting is the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, there are some weird-sounding uh, sayings in there, but there are others that sound kind of weird just because we never heard them in Sunday school. And you can, and some scholars have shown that one where it says, "Unless you place a hand instead of a hand, and a foot in place of a foot, an eye in place of an eye, uh, you'll never inherit the kingdom of the Father." What on earth? It's no big deal. It's just another version of if your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's the same series of metaphors. And there's stuff like that that is baptismal imagery that we're not used to, but the ancients were. And there's some things that are not paralleled in the New Testament, but are more of the same good stuff. Like the way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John, which is just extremely powerful. You know, I am the bread of life. Or, I am the resurrection. Sin chills up your spine. It's so powerful. Well, in Thomas, you've got stuff like Jesus saying, I am the all. all the all came forth from me. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I can't say it without getting a chill. I mean, there there is this mystagogical element that is thrilling to the sympathetic Christian reader. And uh, there's a lot of ascetic stuff and all that that you wouldn't necessarily agree with, but it's just a garden of, of uh, delights, I think, uh, the Gospel of Thomas is. I, I've read so many so many things about the Gospel of Thomas being like Gnostic, I personally think that the letter, yeah. I personally think that the letters of Paul are more, more gnostic than the Gospel of Thomas. They are indeed, and I think yeah. that the Gospel of John is actually even more gnostic than the Gospel of Thomas. You are wise, Van Helsing. Yeah, that, that's that's true. Um, so here's here's this kind of an off off the cuff question. What would you think the world would look like without Paul? 
Or, or let me just put it this way. What would the church look like without Paul? I don't know that it would be much different because um, we at least associate Paul with the uh, the sort of Lutheran-like idea of salvation by grace through faith. But that seemed not to catch on beyond Gnosticism. And already in formative Catholicism and Orthodoxy, you have more of an idea of synergism, that you're still responsible for good works, even if you're, uh, it takes the, an infusion of the Holy Spirit or, or sacramental grace to make it possible. It's still kind of up to you. Uh, and, um, uh, and so that's a kind of classic pattern. It's a kind of salvation by works idea. And uh, that dominated. And uh, um, and then on the other hand, in Protestantism, where it, it is more Lutheran uh, influenced, Protestantism by and large seems to be fundamentalist, pietistic, and charismatic, which has rendered evangelical Christianity, a kind of Western version of Hindu bhakti mysticism, which is based on having a personal relationship with uh, Ram or, or the Buddha or Kali or Shiva or various other uh, heroes and gods. And the idea is you're doing everything you do. In, in a secular lifestyle, I mean, not becoming a monk or anything, but everything you do, you do as a gift and a sacrifice to your personal savior, Kali or whoever. I mean, I don't think there was any influence um, from Christianity to Buddhism on that. It's just that the same sort of things evolve in different cultures. And I think that's what, I mean, to listen to Billy Graham and people like that, you would think the Bible is all about having a personal relationship with Jesus, which I think does not even appear in the Bible. I think nobody thought anything about that until uh, the time of the uh, Lutheran pietists in the uh, century after uh, Luther. And so they really have a, a kind of devotionalism that, that obviates the race business. I mean, they also believe in that, but you could say, well, I'm an old school Luther and I believe in salvation by grace through faith. Fundamentalists would still say, yeah, but you can still go to hell believing in that. You may know about Jesus, but do you know him? I mean, it's like the, the, the end all and be all of Christianity is let's have a little talk with Jesus. And uh, it's, that's a whole different style of religion, and that's American Christianity. So if there had never been a Paul or a Luther, I think it would look much the same. Now, I, I want to just, just briefly touch a little bit on the historicity thing. Mm. So, so um, now, there's the problem that Paul is, that his epistles are the first ones written, for the, for the most part. They're the first one. They're older than the Gospels. They're older than first, second, third John and, and you know, first Peter and so on and so forth. Uh, so Paul doesn't say anything in his epistles about the virgin birth. He doesn't say anything about the, the miracles. 
um, the teachings of Jesus are not in Paul's letters. He does mm. speak about the crucifixion and resurrection, but all of the other, like the, the majority of the gospels are not in Paul's letters. Now, now, um, two things I want to, I want to touch on here. Now, I, if I understand you correctly, Dr. Bob, you, you would, you would say like, that's one of the things that would make you doubt the historicity of the gospels. Is that correct or not? Yeah, because it's just, uh, to me, inconceivable that uh, Paul or whoever wrote him would not appeal to sayings of Jesus if he knew any such sayings. He deals with loads of topics that come up in the Gospels, paying taxes, speaking in tongues, um, um, all sorts of uh, stuff uh, that... Uh, he could easily have settled an issue with by saying, well, you know, this isn't just my opinion. Jesus said this. Some people think that there is one such saying when he's talking about divorce. And he says, now, uh, it's not really me saying this, it's Jesus. But then later on, he says about another issue. On this topic, I don't have any word from the Lord, but I think he's given me uh, sufficient authority to make me credible in my judgment. But the thing is, in first corinthians also he says uh if anybody he gets done talking about prophecy and tongues and he says if anybody wants to dispute this uh and if anybody thinks he's a prophet let him recognize that what i write to you is a commandment of the lord well if once you read that you think wait a minute when he says he has a word from the Lord, he doesn't necessarily mean somebody wrote down something Jesus said in Galilee one day. Uh, it seems to me less likely. Uh, and uh, so that there, there are some statements that sound kind of like Jesus in the Gospels, like uh, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, it's not in the Gospels, but it sounds sort of like it. James Dunn and others really with their back to the wall say pathetically silly things like well uh, you know those jesus like sayings paul really was quoting jesus but he thought it better not to say jesus said it i think of the thing on monty python wink wink nudge nudge know what i mean say no more uh, it, it's just absurd, uh, and and they're they're forced to do that to get out of that tight spot. Well, the thing is, like I don't know that the epistles are earlier than the gospels. It, it doesn't really matter though, because either way, they seem to attest a type of Christianity that knew nothing of a historical Jesus. Might have been earlier, might not have been, just a separate stream. But I think it, that is important evidence for the lack of a historical Jesus. No miracles? I mean, it, he even seems to deny there were any. So Jews seek signs, Greeks seek, wis seek wisdom, but we got to disappoint them. All we say is uh, Christ crucified. You wouldn't have miracles to... I mean, you could say, well, he just thinks that uh, uh, miracles are insufficient to ground real faith. You you can't read that in there. That you're a mind reader, uh, if if that's what you think. And so there, 
it, it does seem to me. If, and, and what about the crucifixion? It's suspicious that, that he attributes in Colossians the crucifixion to the principalities and powers who gave the law. And in, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says that uh, the archons of this age had no idea what they were doing when they engineered the crucifixion of Jesus. They're sealing their own death warrant. Well, he doesn't say anything about Herod or Pilate or the Romans or anything there. It makes you wonder, did he think it was a celestial crucifixion like uh, you have, uh, I think, hinted at in Revelation? Uh, you have parallel things in the Rig Veda. Uh, and uh, a heavenly self-sacrifice of the primordial man and all that. Uh, I just think uh, it doesn't have to mean the scene we see in the Gospels, and you can't just assume that it does. So, yeah, I think that is a big factor. Uh, another one is the similarity with the dying and rising God myths, uh, partly because... There are important ones like that of Baal, Tammuz, and uh, Osiris, and Attis that have evidence of pre-Christian existence. Uh, apologists will deny that, but they're just speaking out of their hat. Um, it, it's obvious the early Christian apologists knew the pagan versions were older because they used this incredible argument well, uh, you know, those uh, false resurrection stories appear because Satan knew in advance that Jesus was going to come and die and rise. So he fabricated these other versions so people would finally hear about Jesus and say, oh, yeah, that's nothing new. That's just another one of these myths. You would have to be out of your mind to argue that way if you thought that the pagan death and resurrection stories were more recent than the gospel. And you, you would never argue that way. It, Satan counterfeited them in advance. We're admitting they're older. Uh, and, and it doesn't ultimately matter. The point is you've got a whole bunch of similar stories, that similar in the, the important respects. Why should you think any one of them is historical? I always like to say it's like some, I'm a big Superman fan, as you can tell from the action figures here. It's as if some nut in the future were convinced that there had been a real Superman that the comics were based on. But people challenged it and suppose he said, well, all right, all right. Uh, I guess he couldn't really leap tall buildings in a single bound. He wasn't faster than a speeding bullet or more powerful than a locomotive. All right, that stuff was embellished. But there was a real Superman. Uh, and I've chiseled away all the accretions. The historical Superman was Clark Kent, a mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. If that's how it began, why would anybody have made any more out of them than that? They wouldn't have had action comics if there were only Clark Kent to talk about. Well, also, like, suppose you're a comic book fan and you're, oh yeah, Superman was real. 
what about Captain Marvel? What about the Martian Manhunter and these guys with the superpowers? Uh, what about Wonder Woman? Uh, were they real too? Oh, no, no, no. They're, they're just fake. Uh, they're fiction. But Superman, now there's a guy that really existed. Why? What would make you think that? Uh, and, and I find it's the same thing here. Oh, this one uh, slain and resurrected divine son. Oh, yeah, he was the real thing. It j just so happens that he's the figurehead of my religion. That's about that's a lot there, Dr. Bob. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I was thinking about when you're talking, you, uh, you mentioned how Paul talked about, you know, I have this commandment of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um I have, I never really looked at that as if he was saying it was directly like from Jesus. Like in, in my point of view, I thought, well, this is something that perhaps even took from, you know, the, the Torah or something to that effect. He, he gleaned that away from the Torah. That's how he could say this is basically a commandment of the Lord. Um, the, like when it comes to, the reason why Paul did not say anything about the miracles and those kind of things, how could it be possible? And you know what? I, I have, I have gotten in, well, I let me put it this way. I have taken a lot of heat for saying this before, but I'll say it again. I think it's quite possible that we know more about Jesus than Paul did. And the reason it's why it's impossible that we could know more than he did is that what I I think that we know more I think that it's quite possible that we know more about Jesus than Paul did because of so let's let's just assume that he did write all of those epistles mm -hmm. first and the gospels were written some other time by some other people perhaps mm -hmm. he didn't even know about them mm -hmm. And if he did, why didn't he mention them in his in his letters? And and yeah. so per, perhaps Paul really was, for lack of a better word, he really was that ignorant of it. That could be. And and he could have known about the crucifixion because of like how the you know, assuming the story of the of the uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus is is factual. You know, like, you know, it's something that a lot of people were talking about. Like, it, it, they didn't talk a lot about the miracles that much. I mean, it's like, don't you, you know, there's the story of the road to, uh, to Emmaus when uh, the, the disciples were actually talking to Jesus. They're like, don't you know what happened? Everybody's talking about what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, that um, that there were, you know, the, the, the crucifixion and so on and so forth. So it seems like something that a lot of people were talking about. But, um, you know, so in that sense, Paul might have known about Jesus' crucifixion because it was talked about that much. But it could be that he wasn't there. He could, you know, it could be that he, maybe he was, he didn't know anything. Maybe he didn't even hear about the miracles. Um, and so that's, that's the, that's what I have always, well, that's, the, that's a position that I've taken in the past you know, in recent years that Paul didn't write about it because he didn't know about it. It's almost like, you know, I know, I know a couple guys actually, and they, they, back in, back in uh, my old days, um, there's a guy who 
what he was a big fan of the band Metallica. Hmm. So he got backstage with Metallica, you know, had a, had a, you know, you know, he was just so, you know, thrilled about his experience with the Metallica guys and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, got to know him a little bit, like I met him anyway, met them backstage and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they could write, like they, they could have a lot of great stories to tell about, you know, Metallica and all this kind of stuff, but they wouldn't know much about their personal life, maybe, maybe not, but maybe they might not know about where they were, uh, like their, their personal life, like something that, you know, they're, you know, these guys who they went to school with, where they grew up with, you know, who they're married to or whatever the case is. Um, I think that I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of speaking what's on my mind. And this is something that I've been thinking about and talking about for uh, several years is, you know, perhaps Paul didn't even know about this stuff at all. Well, your analogy, it's more like uh, if he had met these guys and never referred to their music, uh, that, uh, wait a minute, the big thing about Metallica is their music. Uh, I suppose he had never mentioned that. You would would suspect that... uh, Something was really wrong here, and uh, uh, though of course he could hardly help but know about it. And in fact, if there's anything to Paul meeting eyewitnesses of Jesus, like in Jerusalem, uh, surely he must have known Jesus was venerated as a miracle worker. Uh, I mean, it's a little hard to imagine that wouldn't come up in conversation. Um, you know, not every day a guy's changing water into wine and walking on the surface of a lake. You, you, surely he would have heard about such things if, if they were there to be told. Yeah, it's, that's, that's an amazing, yeah, it's a good point. Um, although like in, in, in Galatians, he did mention, like he, it's almost like he bragged that he didn't spend much time with the, with the, uh, the original 12. And that's really strange as well. It's like if I were there, if I had an experience like Paul, I, I said this many times, if I were like, you know, if, if if a vision from heaven knocked me off my high horse, okay, and uh, and I, you know, came to the realization of who this Jesus was, the first thing I'd want to do is find, okay, how, how do I learn more about him? Who Who can I go to to learn more about this guy? Hmm. But it seems like Paul didn't think that way at all. He didn't do that. He actually, it sounds like he almost bragged, like, I didn't I didn't do that, you know, in, in Galatians chapter 1. Well, yeah, that is the point. He's not, he's not obliged to them. Yeah. He's an equal. He's on the same level. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a mystery, isn't it? I, uh, in, uh, let's see. I wonder in Luke twenty four, uh, in that in the Emmaus scene. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, uh, in uh, twenty four nineteen, and he said to them, uh, "What things?" And they said to him, concerning jesus of nazareth who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before god and all the people that kind of implies uh you know mighty deeds that the 
what could he just you know weight lift or something uh i mean it, it certainly has to imply it's the stuff you've read about up to this point in luke and so that wouldn't really be an example of people having nothing to say about anything but the crucifixion uh, it sort of implied that that this is why we thought this guy was the promised liberator of israel but guess not um that uh, he did he did mighty deeds what, what would that be Mm-hmm. I heard a lot of people say that out of the 13 epistles of Paul, only seven are believed to be truly of him. Do you take that position? No, uh, I. Um, it's funny how that evolved. Um, F.C. Bauer, one of the earliest and greatest New Testament critics, he believed that only the four Hauptbriefe or or principal epistles were authentic Pauline, and that would be Romans, except for like a final chapter and a half. The, the epistle seems to end three different times, so something may have been added. Uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians. He had various arguments that I found pretty uh, pretty convincing, I mean, who knows, uh, against the other ones, uh, vocabulary that seemed never to appear in these four that he thought were sufficiently similar. Uh, Gnosticizing stuff like in the uh, the Philippians 2, 6 through 11 hymn, uh, he thought equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, etc. Uh, and uh, or or hints like in the Thessalonians where it says now be sure to read these to the congregation. Why does he say that? It's it's addressed to the congregation. Well, it Bauer said it looks like somebody is trying to say, I'd like you to put these in the liturgical cycle of readings like the real epistles of Paul. We want to get in there because uh, otherwise, why say it? And uh, th- there are various things to, to make you wonder. Uh, well, um, so Bauer thought it was just those four. Um, Bruno Bauer, a contemporary, believed that no, none of them are by the same guy, much less Paul. And I'm not sure what his arguments were because nobody has ever translated him into uh, English and I don't have the time to plod through the German. Uh, But uh, uh, then uh, by the time of Rudolf Bultmann around the the 20s, 30s in World War II, he, he was back to saying there are seven that seem to be authentic Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. Well, he thought uh, Ephesians doesn't make it because though it's filled with Pauline vocabulary, virtually every phrase of, of Ephesians is closely paralleled in some other Pauline epistle or the Septuagint. He says somebody, I mean others have said this too, that that this seems to be a pastiche of, of Paul. Let's have another epistle. In fact, it may have been Marcion's orig, original epistle to the Laodiceans, uh, which is mentioned in Colossians. Well, he didn't write Colossians, Bultmann thought, because this 
seems to agree with the heretics in 1 Corinthians 15 that you have already been raised with Christ in baptism, where Romans says uh, you you have been baptized, uh, but it, your your spiritual resurrection is yet in the future, and and so he it, some of this stuff is kind of hair splitting, but it's puzzling why there are these differences and uh so on and there are others that say that uh that more of them are authentic but it seems to me the more you do that the more harmonizing you have to do and i tend to think they haven't beaten the arguments of those later writers who agreed with bruno bauer like wc von manen uh, who said that, yeah, all of them bear marks of uh, a later period. That's when Paul says, remember to keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. Paul started this church. He created traditions. I mean, I guess that could mean different things, but it sort of sounds like the Second Peter deal again. Remember how your apostles way back then said, ooh, I'm supposed to be one of them. Uh, so there are these different views. So here's what I did. Uh, in um, my sort of Monarch Notes commentary in The Amazing Colossal Apostle, I approached it from the Dutch radical perspective, interpreting it as secondary stuff, interpolations, uh, pseudographical stuff, none of it by Paul. I tried to show how this makes a lot of sense of everything. But when I uh, did... Uh, the uh, third volume of my Holy Fable series, where I, I went through the epistles and the apocalypse, there I say, now you know probably that most critical scholars think Paul did write the Lucky Seven. So, and they could be right. So let's, as an experiment, see what sense we can make uh, if we read them through that lens. And of course, you can make sense of it. Uh, I would have occasional footnotes saying, you see, I, I still think this is a problem, but, you know, let's go with it. So I admit these are all simply heuristic devices. They're just possible interpretive paradigms. But I have to say the Dutch radical one makes the most sense to me, but that doesn't sew up the case. Will, do you have any questions? Oh, no, and I apologize. I had to step away for a minute, but I didn't want to interrupt you guys. Um, so I missed the last couple of minutes, but um, I'm, um, I am still a little bit curious how you piece together. Um, I know we were talking about it earlier. I'm kind of jumping back to the beginning, but where, where you believe that Paul is Simon, uh, what was his last name again? Omega, Simon the Magician. So hmm. is there any, any, extra biblical resources that you believe are good to use to look into that more well irenaeus in his uh refutation of all heresies he talks about simon and has some interesting stuff that he preached that the world was created by angels uh that uh his uh girlfriend he traveled with helen was the reincarnation of helen of troy and that he had rescued her from a, a brothel 
uh, and this all symbolized the the plight of the human soul in trapped in degraded matter. And, but that you don't have to keep the Torah to be saved, and um, lots that it was he who seemed to be crucified in Judea. So there's a lot of interesting details and stuff you can compare. And I get into all this stuff in uh, in the Amazing Colossal Apostle. So Irenaeus is interesting, and again these. Uh, the pseudo-Clementine homilies and recognitions, two versions of a, the same novel, really. That's interesting, and that's available in books like the Apocryphal New Testament. Uh, there are a couple of versions of that. Uh, there's the Acts of Peter, uh, which has the, this magic battle between uh, Simon Magus and Simon Peter. Uh, so those would be ancient sources that that preserve relevant evidence. I, I certainly don't think all of them are literally true descriptions of what happened, but you can kind of go over them with a fine tooth comb and say, why did this get? What's this doing here? Is there, is there some good reason for it? Is this a reference to this thing over here? It kind of looks like it, and, and so it's fodder to. Uh, to, to use to pursue this, as, as I think you're asking. So those would be the, the big ones, as far as I know. And there are other scholarly books on Simon Magus, too. Um, uh, naturally, I recommend my synthesis of it, but the, any of them. G.R.S. Mead wrote a book on Simon Magus uh, decades ago. I think of the name of another guy that wrote one that I didn't really go along with where he tried to associate Simon Magus with the Persian Magi. I, I didn't find that very helpful, but there, sure there are other ones like a, an Amazon search over Simon Magus and probably come up with stuff. So. Okay. Um, also, I had one more question. This one is kind of, uh, I'm, I'm just curious how you would tackle this question. So as kind of an outsider looking in, because you're not really a Christian, uh, but you're well-read in the Bible. So knowing knowing your, you know, backing for what Paul says versus what the other books of the New Testament say versus what the Tanakh, the Old Testament says, if, if, you, were, if you were a Christian, what would you personally believe that you need to do to properly walk out a Christian faith? To properly walk. Yeah. So let, let me just put it. Let mm -hmm. me put it another way. Um, there's there's basically two big main versions of Christianity out there. There's there's the Paulian Christianity that says confess Jesus as your Lord to be saved, and then there's the more more Torah based Christianity that says we still need to be obedient to the laws of God to be saved per the Old Testament. Which which road would you take personally if you were a Christian? Well, I, I would have to go with uh, the Pauline kind of a thing simply based on what I think was the heart of that argument that if you're a Gentile who has come to believe in Christ, why should you have to get over a, a seemingly irrelevant stumbling block of adopting alien cultural mores like the these people that preferred Paulinism to 
the Ebionites or James type Christian Christianity, they they were hesitant by saying, "Do I have to get circumcised? Do is there any reason I should circumcise my kids? Do I have to no longer eat pork and?" Uh, everything's got to be kosher, and I got to observe all these holy days. I mean, that's the reason those guys had been so-called God-fearers. They liked the ethical monotheism of Judaism uh, and believed in, in the, the Bible's God, and they loved the Bible, but they felt like, I'm not going to become a full proselyte. Uh, that's, that's not what attracts me. Well, I think Pauline Christianity is kind of based on that, and um, since I'm not Jewish, though I love Judaism, I, uh, I wouldn't really want to have to adopt all that stuff that is native to Jews, but, but not to me. Uh, I wouldn't see how that has any real in integral relation with the Jesus of the Gospels, who would be more normative for me. So you even brought it up before where Jesus said, you know, in Matthew 19, like, hey, you and I have eternal life keep the commandments right so all throughout the old testament it's it's about being a set apart people to god you know living not like the rest of the world so how is in your in your assessment of it how is pauline christianity living a set apart life living a set of a set that? apart life different oh, okay. from the, rest of the world well i think of uh the Sermon on the Mount saying, let your light so shine before men that they'll praise, they'll see what you do and praise your father in heaven. Or as Paul says very similarly in Philippians, uh, that uh, you should shine like stars amid the present darkness of this world. And in First Peter, uh, your pagan, your old pagan buddies uh, are no doubt uh, shocked that you're not engaging in the stuff you used to with them, but that's what you ought to do. And and if somebody says, why are you doing this? Be ready to give them an answer. So I think that element is in uh, New Testament non-Jewish Christianity. It's just that all of the, the, the kosher laws and circumcision and so forth were really were ethnic markers to protect Judaism or Israel, whatever you want to say, uh, from assimilating to uh, neighboring pagans, whether in the diaspora or, or in ancient Canaan. It was like, and in fact, uh, some ancient Jewish writers said that, that is, is there any real inherent reason you can't eat mice? Uh, I think in the epistle of Aristeas, he said, well, no, our lawgiver, made uh, stipulations like that so as to make the wall between us and the pagans higher. We don't want to intermarry with them or, or our faith will dissolve. That's still a worry today. Uh, and uh, so, but, but Paul then, he's saying, well, we're talking about a different thing with salvation through Christ, admittedly the Jewish Messiah, but uh, offering salvation to non-Jews. And it's not like they have to have to pretend they're Jews. Uh, they're the, and in fact, you know, Calvin and others said that when Paul talks about the law being passed away, certainly he doesn't mean the moral commandments. He still quotes them. Uh, he he means these things that are ceremonial 
which were ethnic markers that to protect Jewish identity as the chosen people. Well, now there's kind of another chosen people. And, uh, and so that uh, not being a Jew, I would fit in more with the, uh, the, the Gentile uh, thing. So I think that there's a, you know, try to live the Sermon on the Mount, 1 Corinthians 13, you are going to be living a separated life. Interesting. Okay. So what, what would you think about, so, um, like we see, I, I understand that all the way through the, the, the Old Testament, um, Gentiles are kind of being grafted in. Um, we have like the massive amount, I think would be in Exodus chapter 12, 30, 38, where the mixed multitude came mm. out of Egypt, you know, with them. Right. It seems like, it seems like they were grafted in with them. It's not like, mm -hmm. it's not like they were separated at Mount Sinai. Right. Um, we got Ruth, um, you know, these kind of things. Uh, so mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, that, um, the Gentiles were were grafted in those who who wished to join them, and we see the same concept mm -hmm. in Romans eleven. One one more mm -hmm. question before we get too far off the tangent there, Doctor Bob, and that is, I know that Will experiences this a lot, and I I do too. Um, when you're talking, when we're talking about especially about Paul. You get a lot of people saying, well, it's the word of God. Paul is the word of God. And how dare you question the word of God? My question to you, Dr. Bob, is when was Paul's epistles, or I guess that would be the whole entire New Testament, but you know, in specifically Paul's epistles considered to be the quote unquote word of God? How did that, when did that concept come into the church? Well, it's already scripture in in Second Peter, which is usually dated around 150 uh, A.D. or C.E., but that doesn't necessarily mean it's inspired. Uh, the uh, what is it, First or Second Timothy, that says all scripture is inspired. Well, we know that uh, from Philo and others, writing in the 40s and so on, they tended to think that the Old Testament was inspired almost robotically, if I can use that word. Philo said that the writers of, of uh, Scripture were purely passive instruments, like a guy playing a flute, uh, that they really contributed nothing to it. And uh, Calvin, all those centuries later, said, yeah, uh, the scripture was dictated. And uh, it was only in response to the critical approach to scripture at the turn of the century and in the 20s, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, that you had people like uh, Benjamin Warfield say, well, the result is as if it were dictated, but it wasn't quite that simple. Uh, he knew that there were marks of individual authorship in, in these things. You could tell uh, the guy that wrote Romans didn't write uh, Jude and so forth. And he said, well, if God, a famous statement of Warfield, if God wanted an epistle like Romans to be written, he prepared a Paul to write it. And, of course, he's a Calvinist, too, Warfield. And so it was kind of a version of predestination. 
that it seems to Paul that he was writing on his own initiative, but it was really uh, the providence of God making sure that every word was what God wanted, which is, I guess, kind of having your cake and eating it too. Now, so I think that approach is very modern. Uh, I think through most of the history of the church, people believe that it was divinely inspired. Now, when did that start? As far as I know, that would have been in the early third century with Origen, because in his discussion of what ought to be in the canon, uh, he, uh, and probably also based on the allegorical method he inherited from Clement of, Clement of Alexandria, he said, to be in the canon, it has to be inspired by God, so we have to determine which books are inspired and therefore canonical. Because before that, when people had discussed the, the canon, it wasn't so much inspired scripture as is it apostolic, does it fit the apostolic tradition? But as far as I have read, Origen was the first to say, no, we're talking about inspired books like the Old Testament. And, and for instance, you couldn't allegorize a book uh, you, you couldn't get access to a deeper layer unless you believe the Holy Spirit inspired it word for word. Because uh, otherwise, you know, you're just making it up as you go along, which I think allegorizing does anyway. But the, the, the rationale was this isn't just some book written by some guy. Because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, there can be various levels of God-given meaning. So uh, maybe Clement uh, of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome, uh, maybe he already thought that because he did believe there were at least three different meanings in any verse of Scripture. But uh, I, Origen is the first I know of that, uh, that said, yeah, these books are inspired. Uh, and uh, he already thought the Old Testament was. Would, would I be correct in saying that the formation of the Bible canon was actually a formation of an idol? Well, it becomes that. Like Paul Tillich says, if you lose sight of the fact that a, a true symbol is not identical with that to which it points. Though, like, the Bible is the Holy Bible, the cross is the Holy Cross, but that's because it participates in what is truly holy. So it's kind of derivative, but genuinely holy. So if you understand the Bible to be a revelation of God, pointing to God, it wouldn't be an idol. But if you become what some call a bibliolater, uh, where it, it now becomes almost more important than God, like James Gustafson, the great Christian ethicist, once said, he was, he was reading something by Carl F.H. Henry, and he said, uh, he didn't mean to exaggerate, but he really got the impression that for the evangelical Carl Henry, the Bible was the most important thing, that Jesus is authoritative because he's a character in the Bible. And I, I often get that impression. And if that is so, uh, then it's becoming an idol. Uh, and uh, it's like um, where, where Jesus, I think the, the key passage here would be in John 12, where Jesus says this astonishing thing. He calls people to him and he said, hey, 
Whoever believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Notice that the the interesting structure of that, he doesn't say, whoever believes in me, you're making a big mistake. No, no. He assumes you believe in him, and that's quite proper to do, but let's keep it straight. If you're believing in me aright, it's because you see me as the door to the Father. And uh, there's a Buddhist thing, a Zen thing like that. So some guy uh, walks up to a Buddhist monk and says, somebody told me the moon is out tonight. I, I don't know the language uh, exactly. Can you tell me what the moon is? Well, it happens. There's a full moon out and the, the monk just points to it. Suppose the guy that asked him the question thinks, oh, this is the moon. Uh, no, no, he got the wrong idea. And Jesus is saying, yes, if you believe in me, that's good. But if you really understand what that means, it's you're believing on him who sent me. I'm not an end in myself. But I, he's not saying he's not important, right? I am the way. That's what religious symbols, including the Bible, always are, unless you make them an end in themselves and they're an idol. That's what we get is like... Um... Well, Paul has to be perfect because he's in the Bible or, you know, the book of first Corinthians has to be perfect because it's in the Bible. Well, they have to say that it's part of their hermeneutic really more than anything else, because they need a license to be confident that whatever this magic book, to put it bluntly, says is true. Uh, and uh, because if they just say like liberal theologians like C.H. Dodd and uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick using the Bible is a work of religious genius, that the, the writers were inspired men, the text is not inspired. Uh, and uh, that allowed for contradictions and uh, sort of retrograde views and all that. But uh, this is why fundamentalists said, ah, no, no, we believe not only in the verbal, but the plenary inspiration of the Bible. The whole text is authoritative because if not, none of it is finally authoritative. Like if I say, well, I do believe it's the word of God, but I got to admit that James and Paul don't agree here. I, I guess I'll just have to assume that James meant the same thing. He just put it very clear. What's like you, you're that doesn't work. You're admitting that they're an apparent contradiction, which is enough by itself to vitiate your view that it's the apparent sense of the text, the plain sense of the text that is authoritative. So you can't afford to admit there are even apparent contradictions. So the jig is up. Uh, and But that's why they want to believe in an inspired Paul, an inspired Pauline epistle, because if I have to start drawing lines, what the heck, I, I'm really no better than a guy without a Bible. Uh, and I'm finally reduced to using my own common sense. Well, that may not be a bad idea, but that's what they're afraid of, I think. Thank you very much. I'm just going to, if I can... You guys can excuse me for a few minutes. I'll let you guys talk there. I'll be back in a few minutes. Mm. Let me see here. Let's see if we got any comments. Mm. 
So you used to be a Baptist minister, is that correct? Yeah. How In fact, I meant. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask how long you were a Baptist minister. Uh, six years. Uh, in fact, oddly enough, I just mentioned Harry Emerson Fosdick, the great figurehead of Protestant liberalism in an earlier generation. This was his first pastor at the church I served decades later. Uh, and the, the congregation was very pluralistic in their beliefs. I didn't even know what some of them believed. But my predecessor, who got me interested in the pa pastorate, in the same congregation, he was very well read and very uh, balanced. I mean, he preached solidly from the Bible, but he was also talking from Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. I'd never heard preaching like this. And, uh, and the, a lot of the people had themselves been seminary students and the like, and they'd gotten disillusioned with other churches and gravitated to this one. So it was a real interesting place. Uh, but eventually the uh, we had so few people left that we couldn't keep uh, the building in decent shape and sold it off. And, and about, about that time I, I left and had a, formed a kind of a little house church congregation. So when did you move away from, um, I don't want to say you moved away from theology because you really haven't, but when did you move away from like wanting to do pastoral type work? Well, that's a real good question because I found that uh, pastoral work seldom involved any kind of theology, like visiting the sick. Uh, they were just wanting somebody to comfort them and be with them and listen to, to them. Uh, it would have been almost ridiculous for me to start trying to explain why God allows us to get sick and all that. They weren't really interested in that. Um, at funerals, I kind of dreaded having to do that, but I found immediately that it was a profound privilege to do it. And my sermons were, homilies at these were a combination of, of a testimonial to the person. What a privilege to be able to say the last word about somebody's life. Um, but I would also preach in a sort of Heideggerian way and say, uh, death claims everybody, uh, no matter how many decades you live, it's really, in the big scheme of things, uh, just a, a heartbeat. Uh, you've got, like Psalm 90 says, you know, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Uh, and, and so I would uh, you know, talk about that, but I, I, it, it didn't even seem appropriate to talk about uh, a happy afterlife, which I by then had no real belief about one way or the other, but amazingly, it never really came up. In my sermons, uh, I would uh, preach about issues of meaning and morality and stuff. I would exhort people to uh, a, a moral life and wise behavior. Uh, I'd never cheerleaded for theology, whether mine or anybody else's, and nobody seemed to really want that. That would be a, like, I would have study groups during the week, but I thought it, it was a mistake to treat the pulpit like a classroom uh, and uh, to say, well, let's talk about the theology of so-and-so. No, that's not why they're there. People want encouragement and exhortation and so forth. So I found the theology thing almost... Uh, 
negligible in importance. I was happy to talk about it with people that wanted to. And I even had a kind of a catechism class with uh, young people. And I was trying to explain the origin and development of Christology, uh, theories of the atonement and all this stuff. And I said to them, I'm not telling you what to believe, but I believe you ought to know the tradition that you, you, you come from. It's up to you what to do with it or not, but you shouldn't be ignorant of it. So let's get into it. And that was the way I, I dealt with theology. It's great stuff. You ought to know it. You think about it. And uh, I found that worked pretty well. Uh, that was my version of Christian education. It, right. it does seem like a lot of churches um, care less about theology than they do about preaching just basic uh, moral sermons, for lack of a better term. Um, I would say that that is the majority of, of church sermons I've heard seem to be right in line with what you're saying, actually. I, I don't think that churches should be like that, though. I think it should be more of an open forum. I think people should dive into the cultural context and just really broad things that don't get spoken about in many churches. What would be some examples? So, I mean, when it comes to cultural context, like Christianity, modern day mainstream Christianity completely leaves out the, the Judaism side of it. They don't teach the Torah. They don't teach what the Jews believe. They don't teach what mm -hmm. the Jews taught. They don't teach really even how Jesus lived his life and what culturally it was like at the time. You know, people don't realize that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, right? And Jewish rabbi is far different than what they're being taught in, in their church sermons. Um, now, there is a difference between Talmudic rabbinical Judaism and then rabbinical Judaism based off of the Torah. Um, Cause it seems like Orthodox Judaism more relies on the Talmud than they do the Torah. So, um, and that, that is oftentimes in the new Testament, you see where, where Jesus is differing mm. from the Pharisees and Sadducees is they're already teaching basically Talmudic laws all throughout the New Testament when Jesus is coming in preaching the Torah. Now, like in Matthew 15, um, they're teaching that you have to wash your hands before you eat or you defile that food. So basically you would break the dietary laws, but the Torah doesn't say anything about that. Right. You know, and then just like you brought up Acts 15, you know, do I have to, do I have to get circumcised? Well, I, I think that's a reason why Paul or whatever his name was, was actually arguing uh, in favor of not doing it because the Torah actually does state that you need to do it as a child. You need to do it for your children, right? So should a 60 year old man get circumcised when he becomes a Christian? No, that's why Paul was fervently arguing that. And I would tend to agree with him, but these are not the kind of things they talk about in church. They don't bring up this because they're not taught it. Maybe they don't care. I don't know, but they really need to teach more cultural context in order to fully understand the Bible from the front to the back. Yes, uh, that is important. If you, you just like Martin Luther said, 
if you don't know what the uh, the culture was like, you, you, a lot of things just are not going to make any sense. But you, there's information you can find out, and uh, the, the people should. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, we got a comment here uh, earlier. I guess you mentioned um, Constantine and Mithra. Um, mm. They were interested to see what more information you had on that. Uh, well, Constantine, interestingly, was the head of two religions. Uh, he, I, we're not absolutely sure he converted to Christianity. There's some reason to believe he was raised as a Christian. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't know that it matters much, but he, he wasn't in a position to legalize Christianity until he became the emperor, and he did. But as emperor, he also, like, um, Mithraism was still the official state religion. Uh, I think it was his successor, Theodosius, that made Christianity the state religion. But before that, Constantine, as the emperor, had to occupy the office of the Pontifex Maximus of the Invincible Sun, uh, the sun god Helios, who was sometimes equated with Mithras, uh, a son of God. And that's probably where we get the idea that Jesus was born December 25th. Um, it only became relevant to, to know when it was once the Council of Nicaea uh, sort of settled the question of the, the divinity of Jesus. Then you're talking about an incarnation, so when did that begin? And so the birthday matters. If you were an adoptionist, it didn't make any difference. Well, anyway, um, where'd they get that? Well, uh, that was the day of Brumalia, which was the uh, the birth, the rebirth day of Mithras as a sun god. It was, uh, what the heck is it? The uh, so the the winter solstice when the days begin to get longer again and that was symbolized by the death and rebirth of mithras uh, because uh, he 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 gets extinguished on the shortest day and is reborn as the days get longer well this was the and, and people had big parties and stuff for the whole eight day week uh, culminating on brumalia the the birthday of mithras well, the theory is that the Christian bishops said, you're not going to get Christians to stop celebrating this, even though they're, they're not pagans anymore, but I'm not comfortable with that. Since we don't really know when Jesus was born, why don't we pick that as the day to observe it, to celebrate it? And people will have Christmas parties and so forth. It's like having these first night things on... Uh, New Year's Eve, right, where you have stuff for young folks to do that doesn't involve boozing and, and all of that. It was a similar sort of a thing. Well, uh, Brumalia and, and Mithraism was very important because the Roman soldiers encountered it on their tours of duty uh, in the East, especially like um, Tarsus in, in uh, Cilicia and Persia and so forth, because this was a real macho religion. Uh, Mithras's great act of, of uh, redemption would break the neck of the cosmic bull. And this all went back to astronomy.
astronomical or astrological symbolism because it commemorated the passing of uh, the age of of Taurus, uh, and uh, hence the bull, and the dawn of the age of uh, of Perseus. And so uh, the constellations were, were part of this. And uh, this gets into really complicated stuff, but uh, in Tarsus, they kind of invented the Mithraism that would become the state religion because they decided that Mithras was the same as Perseus and that you could be initiated into his victory over the cosmic bull through the Tarabolium, uh, the bull throwing, which was an ancient hunter's rite, where you would uh, get into a pit underground and they'd put an iron grating over the top and slice the throat of a bull standing on top of it and you'd be washed in the blood hallelujah literally and uh so this would give you a head start on immortality it's kind of like gnosticism it's kind of like the mystery religions and uh and there were some parallels with christianity paul if he really was from tarsus could hardly help knowing about this and uh the origin of of this kind of mithraism you can find in this terrific little book called the origin of the mithraic mysteries by david ulansi and uh it gets into how this was started by uh, syrian pirates and that's fascinating uh, but uh this was the big thing and all that to say constantine inherited the job to be the high priest of mithras uh but uh what did he believe about it did he feel like well I, i'm just stuck with this i gotta go through the motions we know he was really interested in christianity because he convened the council of nicaea Right, and uh, he was—he had 50 copies of the the Bible made up as pulpit Bibles for all the bishops. We know he was a Christian. Was he also somehow a Mithraist? Boy, I would love to know, but we don't. Fascinating stuff. I, I'm sorry, I'm such a big mouth. I'm really going on way longer than I need to. I just can't stop. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, yeah, I love it. Um, Corinthians versus Galatians. We got Paul that um, said in Corinthians, you know, like how you mentioned earlier, I'm a Jew to the Jew and a Gentile to the Gentile. Isn't that what he accused Peter of doing in Galatians chapter 2? Exactly. This was recently pointed out to me uh, by uh, uh, Rabbi Tovia Singer. Uh, I don't know how I had missed this all the time, but it is exactly what he's doing. Peter was happy to eat at the non-kosher table with his new buddies, the Gentile converts, but then the men from James showed up, uh, and he knew they would look at this pretty dimly. So he said, well, I guess I'll uh, go over and see if there's a seat available at the kosher table. And Paul says, what do you think you're doing? Uh, you, we've seen all week 
uh, you're though you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile, uh, and now you're by implication telling the the Gentiles that they ought to live like Jews. Uh, and and the word Judaize appears one time in the New Testament, and that's it. He says, "Who are you to Judaize the Gentiles?" Oh. Boy, what is he doing? But exactly what he says he, he himself does in First Corinthians. I never even noticed this. Galatians is, uh, I, you know what? I, I call Galatians a dumpster fire of theology. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, you have verse 7. Paul said, I'm the one that's called to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews. But Acts chapter 15, verse 7, is the opposite. Mm -hmm. Peter says, God called me by my yeah. mouth to speak to, to preach to the Gentiles. And Peter, and Paul was standing right there. He said not a word. Of, well, I mean, it wasn't recorded that he said anything. Well, that's what that's a prime example of what F.C. Bauer said, the nature of Acts, that it's a conciliatory, or he would he's a Catholicizing document to uh, make Peter sound like Paul and Paul sound like Peter, so everybody's happy. Because there's, I mean, who starts the Gentile mission? It's Peter with Cornelius. What? Uh, and, and even in Matthew, the idea of the Great Commission, they're going to fan out in all the world. If that's the case, why is Paul called the apostle to the Gentiles? And they wind up saying Peter and Paul worked together hand in hand in Rome. Come on, that, that's impossible. Uh, and but it's a result of this. Every is everybody happy? Is uh, let's merge and mix everything. And a lot of Christians talk as if that uh, Paul is like the only apostle to the Gentiles. But didn't when when Jesus called his twelve disciples? to go into all the world, the Great Commission, didn't he, in effect, make them all apostles to the Gentiles? Yeah, and and the you can tell this is not something, even if you believe the resurrection happened, this didn't. Because uh, ask yourself how the business in Acts 10 and 11 with Cornelius and the incredulity first of Peter and then the Jerusalem elders. Peter, are you out of your mind preaching and eating with Gentiles? I know what you mean, but here's how I got convinced. Hey, I thought uh, the, the parting words of the resurrected Son of God were to you, were to get out there and preach to all the nations. If he had said that, how could there be any doubt? It seems pretty clear. So well, it seems like basically somebody is trying to authenticate a Gentile mission later. And I think the real audience is the reader, the the uh, Jewish Christians of Antioch, where Matthew was probably written. Go ahead. I just my opinion on that. I think that Peter was still I think he was preaching to the Gentiles, but I think he was still seeing them as lesser, as un unclean or common i think he was still seeing them as lower not equal so it would make sense to me in acts 10 where he's like hey you need to stop treating them like this where he really brings it home for him and he's like okay you've been you've been out there you've been preaching to the gentiles but you're not treating them like like equals you're not treating them like humans you still see them as common as as lesser 
than the Jew. So that's that's how I feel about Acts 10 slash the Great Commission. Because it would seem a lot of them were still being high and mighty, for lack of a better term. They were they were still acting like the Jew first. Um, and then, you know, the the Greeks, the Gentiles are, are lesser. They're they're common. They're commoners. So uh, it seems to me that Acts 10 would be a good clarification to them acting that way after preaching to the Gentiles for a uh, few years at this point. Well, it doesn't say Peter had ever done it. It says some of the Hellenists uh, explicitly excluding the apostles wound up uh, preaching to some Gentiles, but uh, Peter certainly wasn't. And uh, and when he reports to the Council of Elders, their reaction is, what do you know? Then God really has opened the door of repentance to the Gentiles. That kind of sounds like nobody was preaching to them up to that point. Well, even Jesus in his ministry was pre preaching to Gentiles, you know, so obviously they knew that he was opening the door. I mean, the a woman at the well, for instance, all that she wasn't, she wasn't a Jew. You know, that, that whole, that whole bit in there, um, he was, he was preaching to Gentiles. Well, she's a Samaritan. Uh, they claimed they were Jews. It seems to me there are a couple of places in the synoptics where uh, Jesus it, they can't say Jesus engaged in it because there's at least enough historical memory to know that he didn't have a ministry among Gentiles, but they want Jesus to have endorsed the Gentile mission in, in advance. So in both the case of the centurion servant and the, the Syrophoenician woman's demon-possessed daughter, it's interesting what the, the symbolism is. You've got Jesus healing um, the son and or servant, Pice could mean either one with the centurion, and the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, so it's the next generation, and they're both Gentiles, uh, and so Jesus is sort of implicitly and symbolically endorsing the Gentile mission, which will happen in the next generation. I think that's why the stories are written that way, and uh, and so that they're trying to play both sides of it. And uh, like at first, he doesn't even want to exercise the woman's daughter, uh, but uh, probably Socratically, he's saying, "Well, lady, you know, I I really can't do this. You can't take the food for the kids and give it to the dogs." And then she is nice enough to say, well, yeah, but you do give the leftovers to the dogs. And he says, touche. For that answer, I'm going to do it. Uh, it's, uh, he, I think the idea was he wasn't buffing her. Uh, he's, he's just being Socratic. Which he's raising the bar. And he says, woman, great is your faith. Uh, you wouldn't give up. But nonetheless, it's the next generation. She's not the one that's exercised, but uh, somebody who is a Gentile in the nation is. Same thing with the, the centurion servant. I think you, you really have an anticipation and a pre-authentile mission, but that Jesus didn't engage in it. That was left to Peter, Paul, or whoever. Here's a question. The the Protestant 66 book Bible, is there any 
um, evidence at all that anybody claimed, prophet, priest, king, I don't care, anybody claimed that they heard directly from God or they had a visitation of an angel or whatever that gave them a list of 66 books. This is this is to be the Bible. I, I don't believe so. I've never heard that. And I'm sure I would in my research into the canon. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting that nobody ever did uh, because uh, they treat it as if that's what happened as if the table of contents of the Bible is, is part of the inspired text. It isn't. Uh, and that's why, of course, uh, there's still different canons, several different ones uh, in churches in different parts of the world. Uh, and that's like a, when Protestants, they're not going with church tradition, we're going with the Bible. Billy Markson, a German uh, theologian, said, what we Protestants have sawn a limb we were sitting on. Because our all-important Bible was defined by tradition. It's a fun of the church tradition. You can't oppose the one to the other. Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, like, you know, in the uh, Revelation of John, the angel said, there's going to be six books and so on. Nobody ever does that. I, I bought the years ago, I bought a th like a thick book about like about the Bible. I'm thinking, OK, this will give me the answer as to how they got the 66 books like, you know, that God gave some kind of revelation or something like that. Somebody claimed somewhere, somehow that God spoke to them or showed them a vision or an angel or something like that. Nothing. Nothing. The closest it ever comes, and this is not that close, is in fourth Ezra, also known as second Ezra. Oh, yeah, that's it. Uh, where, you know, it says that the that the all of the scriptures were destroyed during the Babylonian exile, and that God inspired Ezra with with a, a drink uh, that that uh, really uh, empowered him to all of books of the Tanakh, uh, word for word, and some of the other ones that were esoteric and to be kept aside. Uh, that supposed to be the second uh, with a 70 element that nobody really knows, or was it like the Book of Enoch and stuff like that? Who knows? But that, at least, is uh, a story in which somebody figured the whole canon was inspired. Of course, that's only the Old Testament. And depending on what it means, the question of the canon. Should it con contain the so-called apocrypha or not? That's still a wide open I pretty much consider the apocrypha part of it, it seems to me. I would agree. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's plenty of apocrypha that should be considered scripture. When do you think Second Ezra was written? Most folks think it was written probably first century, because a lot of the book is a, a kind of theodicy discussion between Ezra and the angel Uriel over. Uh, it, it's like survivor guilt. The angel tells 
says, Ezra, well, you were spared because you're righteous. And Ezra, and I don't really deserve that. Uh, I really should have been destroyed along with No, no, believe me. Uh, God's got his eye on you. It's really remarkable. And then he has all these visions very much like the book of Revelation. And there's some that sound an awful lot like the so-called Q, the material in Luke and uh, Matthew that isn't in Mark. Now, most scholars would say the beginning of of uh, fourth Ezra and the very end. Those are Christian chapters. I'm, I'm not so sure of that. They say, well, this sounds too Christian. But I, uh, I'm not so sure of that. It's hard to draw the line between Messianic Judaism and Christianity in those early times, but it does seem to be that long after the fall of to the Roman. I see a couple comments here. Uh, one John said Paul was psychotic. Another person said Paul was a schizo like a, a schizophrenic. Uh, this is uh, I don't know uh, my boss. Uh, uh, Paul Kurtz, a center inquiry up in Amherst, he used to this view or that Paul was an epileptic. A, a lot of people say that. I think that's just one more key example of the old Protestant rationalism from the 18th century, that, that you want to take the story literally, you don't believe in miracles. Uh, though these guys were Protestant Christians, Christians, they were so enamored of Newtonian mechanism, they said, well, there are miracles. God doesn't need to make mid-course corrections. He, he planned it all out to begin with. Uh, a kind of a depressing prospect, but that's what they thought. So they said, there are no miracles. You, we, the, the writers didn't understand the scientific factor. In, and so they'd have these stories about how the Red Sea was pushed up because of uh, volcanic gases under the Earth's crust and so on and so on. Uh, and, and it's kind of silly almost. Well, this is one of those where you're saying, well, okay, Paul did have this life-changing vision, but what people have that? Well, delusion, it's a phrenics, um, it, that's a very naive view and sort of insulting, uh, but they're just trying to say, well, you have a vision, but uh, there's nothing miraculous or supernatural about it. And I just, that is, is silly. It's like when people say, oh, why did the Israelites see the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud in the day? Well, it's because the manna they were eating had uh, some sort of Cynogenic, uh fungus on it, which it apparently does sometimes, and that that they were seeing great hallucinations. Get the heck out of here! That's ridiculous. Uh, and it's it's obvious. I would say you're just dealing with a myth, as, as said. You're just making a laughing stock of it. Uh, it, it. You got to admit these are not historical. Which does mean they're worthless. Uh, is this poetry worthless because it's not prose? And, and uh, unfortunately, this kind of weird skeptical literalism is, is around. 
Here's one more question. Uh, 1 John 2.26 asks the question, um, ask who the, the false apostle in Revelation 2, 2 is. Um, I'm not sure you heard. I, I mean, there is a theory out there that people think that it was Paul because Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I think it's verse 5, um, it's chapter 1 anyway, um, where he said, all of Asia has forsaken me. So basically, these people have, have, you know, basically turned away from Paul. They have denied Paul. And then Jesus comes in later and says to the Ephesians, you know, the center of Asia in that day, in those days, saying, oh, you know, basically one thing that's going, you know, that I got one thing that's good about you guys is you you have rejected the, the false apostles. Mm -hmm. And so there is a theory out there that uh, that Revelation 2 verse 2 is talking about Paul. What do you think about that, Dr. Bob? Yeah, I know your works toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who called themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. Well, that could be just about anybody Paul or who uses similar language. Uh, it talks about the, the, uh, Super apostles, literally, the uh, Huperleon Apostoloi, the super apostles. I'm in no way inferior to them. And uh, and then he says, you know, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Should you be surprised when his servants um, seem claim to be servants of light? Well, what's he talking about? It's hard say, um, but some scholars, even conservative ones, some, um, like C.K. Barrett, have said that uh, he's about the Jerusalem apostles, and that he's just taken a step beyond what he says in Galatians, that they're, as, they're reputed to be pillars, but that nothing to me. Well, that here he sent their false apostles, but we don't know. Uh, it could be that they were uh, like in, in the, the Didache, for instance, it talks about wandering apostles who were charismatics and had oracles and all that. Uh, uh, they weren't the Jerusalem apostles, but the apostolic office apparently continued in some form. He could have been talking about them. Well, by the same token, uh, in Revelation, they could really have body in mind, but there is a point to... Uh, to thinking it might be Paul, because isn't it interesting that when you see the foundation stones of the gates of the New Jerusalem, 12, each engraved with the name of one of the 12 apostles. Now, who does that exclude? Uh, it, uh, it, some people have said, well, uh, Paul, uh, he's a fake apostle. The Ebionites sure thought he was. Uh, they eventually they thought he was the Antichrist. And uh, so this, uh, it, it's tough to say. Uh, I, one thing again is that the author of Revelation appears to be an encratite, that is the celibacy gospel, that you have to give up sex even within marriage or, or you're still under the burden of the original sin of Adam. Uh, and uh, several acts, there are several of The apostles are teaching that. You want to go to heaven. There's even a sermon 
uh, of Paul in the Acts of Paul, where he's blessed of a celibate, etc. Well, uh, Revelation seems to buy that because what do we hear about the 144,000? They have not defiled themselves. They are virgin. They have not defiled themselves with women. Now, that, that's not saying they haven't gone to prostitutes. It doesn't say they're not adulterers. It, it would seem to say that sex defiling like some thought it was in the Garden of Eden. And so they are virgins. Now they're going to be saved. Well, the Enverites love Paul. Like this thing I just mentioned in, in uh, Iconium, he gives a kind of Sermon on the Mount analog uh, and says again and again, it's only the celibate that will be saved and who will judge the fallen angels and so forth. So who knows? It, it would make Sidvitz fall. But uh, it be somebody else because the Enfertites love them. I wouldn't think that you know uh, it would be it would mean any, any of the original twelve. So apart from the original right. twelve, who else was considered to be an apostle? I know what Paul was, and then who else? Mm -hmm. Barnabas. Uh, I think Barnabas. Well, uh, let's see. In Acts fourteen, as to Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas as the apostles, and there's one other passage that does, but in the Western text, it doesn't say, it, and it leaves only one passage where it's it calls them apostles. And Luke's uh, agenda in Acts seems to be to say, okay, Paul is an instrument of God, but he couldn't apostle because remember replaced Judas, one of the parts of the job description is he has to have been with us from the baptism of Jesus through to the ascension. Well, that's not Paul. It's like he, he, he lucifically saying, nah, he, he doesn't qualify. Judas did, obviously, but he crashed was okay, but it seemed oh, he doesn't think Paul is an apostle, but that's not bad because God uses him anyway. To go the whole way because his patron, apparently. Um, but um, if somebody thought that he was a Paul Barnabas, maybe they're considered uh, apostles. Well, Andronicus and Junia uh, in the uh, in Roman sixteen called uh, noteworthy or prominent among the apostles. And though that could mean that they're renowned in the apostolic service, oh yeah, if you really want to work with them. But it, it would ordinarily seem to be saying, among the apostles, these two are standouts, which implies there's various more apostles. But the 12 are not the only apostles. In fact, apostle has a larger in Gnosticism and on into Islam, where uh, Muhammad is, uh, he is the Rasul Allah. He, it means he's the apostle of God. And, and, and a, a great book on us, uh, by uh, Walter Schmidthals uh, called The Office of Apostle in the Church goes into this incredible amount of material about other views of apostleship in contemporary non-Christian religion.
Americans. Uh, stuff like you never heard, heard anywhere else. Amazing stuff. Like you were saying, that, that uh, you need to know the background or things make sense. A bunch of stuff I never knew there was any such background, but the, di the deeper you dig, holy mackerel. It's just We got someone asking here about, ask him about the virgin birth and vic vicarious atonement. Uh, well, the virgin birth, this this is trickier than you'd think because uh, there's a book by Jane Shaberg called The Illegitimacy of Jesus uh, where she says very respectfully, says there's reason to doubt whether Matthew is actually trying to tell us there was a miraculous exception. It, rather, like you ever wonder why Matthew's genealogy refers to only four women and uh, it doesn't even name uh, oh boy, which one is it? well it's Tamar, Bathsheba, Ruth and uh, uh, Snap out of a price. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and, and Bathsheba. What is it about these women that would uh, be included? Weren't plenty inevitably in the theology? And she points out that in contemporary Judaism, all of these were considered morally devious, uh, if not directly in the Bible, in in surviving midrashic lore. For instance, Tamar, of course, posed as a prostitute to seduce uh, Judah, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And so that uh, and so that's a little iffy. Um, Ruth, who you'd think is a Girl Scout for sure. Well, remember, after Boaz is passed out drunk after the harvest festival, which is what usually happened at these things, the new wine and all of this, uh, she um, lies down at his feet, like four or five times Old Testament, where feet is used as a euphemism for penis. Uh, and and uh, it's like she's uncovering the naked of her kinsman, which implies she had sex with him because she does wind up marrying him. But that's a little iffy. Uh, Bathsheba, obviously, or adulteress. Um, and uh, Rahab, a prostitute, but one of the good guys because of Jericho and all that. Well, Schoenberg says, what, why is this, why are these women highlighted? Well, she says, take a look at what it says about Mary. When Joseph discovers he's pregnant. Now, this is sort of obscure because it says he found she was with child uh, by the Holy Spirit, of course. It's like he, he doesn't want to leave the lingering shadow over her, so he lets his cat out of the bag. But, jo but Joseph doesn't know that, right? And he thinks that, oh my God, she's either been raped or deuced because in either case, according to the law, he should uh, uh, put her away. But he, he doesn't. He thinks about it. He says, I don't want to. 
I'll, I'll uh, get rid of her. Presumably, I don't want to shame her. Uh, but then the angel tells him, hey, no, uh, don't worry. This is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it's going to be great stuff. Well, Sheberg says, look at it again at these stories of these Old Testament women, especially with Tamar. When he's about to stone to death, and Judah says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know what, what happened. It's my fault, not hers. But in some of the Targums, uh, the Midrashim, these retellings of the story, it says in one of them that the voice of God speaks and says, no, me, uh, don't worry, it's okay. And, uh, and the others have some kind of, don't worry about it, it's all right. Uh, and Shade says, is that what it means when he says to Joseph, don't worry, this is from Holy Spirit. Not she's miraculous, but maybe she was seduced and had a moral cloud over her. I realize how offensive this is. And in fact, people filled Abram's car with buckshot down in Texas when this happened. But uh, she's saying maybe, just as the genealogy says, God's grace can lift up even sinner and instrument. Maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe it was firmly believed by Jews that Mary was, uh, well, they confused with Mary Magdalene, who was supposed to be a prostitute. Maybe that was right. And he's saying God can use even such person. I have to admit that makes some sense to me. It's a toss-up, who knows, but it is kind of odd, and how to explain it otherwise, I don't know. Well, with Luke, uh, that's not Right, but there is a pretty good argument. How do we know that in Luke she is supposed to be uh, a virgin when she gives birth? Well, of course, the angel appears to her this time and says, uh, You're gonna be pregnant, have a son, and all that. And she says, Wait a minute, how could that be? I'm, I know not a man. And uh, you'd think the this picture, Gabriel saying, Wait a minute, have I got the wrong house? I mean, you are engaged to this guy, right? I mean, you're going to have a son. What's the problem? Well, if that's kind of absurd. And uh, it interrupts the the canticle of, of the angel. There, there are these canticles, of course, in the beginning of Luke, from Zechariah and Mary and so forth. Um, well, in all the other ones, there's no interruption. The person who is singing verses just goes right through to the end. This is the only one that's interrupted, and there are a couple of old manuscripts where the interruption is not even there. And so uh, it, it looks to me like somebody trying to enforce the idea of the virginal conception uh, by putting this silly sounding objection in. Originally, no. Uh, of course, she, she plans on having kids, and uh, and the angel says, well, one of them is uh, the first one, the only one, whatever. It's going to be the, the king and all of that. That makes perfect. Well, when Mary and Joseph are on their way to Bethlehem to register, in some copies it says he is betrothed, 
but in some it says marry his wife well if that is reading you don't have a, a miraculous conception in uh in uh luke either i again these are interesting possibilities i have no proof but it is interesting that the door kind of uh, leans open as to whether he's even the the evangelists are even meaning that uh, uh, but if the oh, what a mess this is into suppose they did mean to say jesus was miraculously miraculously conceived by the holy spirit uh, not by joseph and what the heck is the geology doing in there they both come down joseph and as raymond brown a jesuit says you can't reconcile them they're just Two different genealogies. You can't say, "Oh, one of them's Mary." Well, you might as well say it's Herod's. I mean, there's this end of that. Uh, go ahead and say that. Well, but the the problem is, why connect Jesus with Abraham through Joseph if he's not Joseph's son? Uh, you can say, "Oh, well, he he was adopted." Uh, that as a legitimate messianic credential oh the scion of David uh, adopted but uh, I, I just can't believe that so anyway you cut it, problems uh, but maybe the least problematical is what Shepard says but who knows that's more than you know, wanted to know what about the vicarious atonement I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, forgive me. I have called near Christianity a takeoff on C.S. Lewis, and in it I say there. You want to know why there have been so many theories of the atonement? Why one isn't good enough? Because none of them make any sense. And uh, I hate to say that, uh, but um, Hosea Ballou, an 18, uh, 19th century universal theologian, said. Tell me if this makes any sense to you. Some guy tries to assassinate the president. They stop him, and he's going to be hanged. Uh, but the president himself says, wait a minute. No, don't, don't hang that guy. Let's have mercy on him. Hang me instead. Would anybody that made any sense at all? Is that any of this? How, what sense does it make to say, yeah, let's make this innocent guy pay for the sin of humanity. I just don't know what the uh, what the meaning of that is when people say Jesus died for your sins. What do you mean? Why not just Jesus says God forgives sins? Couldn't he do that? I mean, the, the, the mechanics of this render it eligible. Um, so I, I'm afraid that's what I think of that. I, I don't mean to be a Christianity hatred, but I have uh, studied theology for decades. Once believed this, but the closer scrutiny I gave it, I just do not. Hey, Dr. Uh, Dr. Price, do you mind if I ask you, you were on the Jesus Project, right? Uh, the short-lived, I, I was involved with the Jesus Seminar. 
Jesus Project was a, a short-lived fiasco. Uh, they it was just bundled from the start and uh, and and it dissolved almost immediately. But I was in the Jesus Seminar for some years. So the the Jesus Project didn't really take off or go anywhere. No. It was ridiculous. They did bring in a real interesting group of impressive scholars, and there was uh, an organizing meeting, and then months later, uh, a first meeting with speakers and all that. Oh, both of them were real good, but they took the list of attendees and participants conference and sent it out as a list of members, and they started saying, I was a member of this, and they, somebody just screwed up the list, and this destroyed it uh, for some reason. There was never another meeting. It was just so bungled. Uh, I happen to know what happened because my wife was given the task. I worked for them at the time. Uh, she was uh, given the task of making sense of this, and now they, they were the wrong list. Uh, there was no list. They, they hadn't signed up any members yet, so... What, what cars does it turn out? Well, I guess that renders my next question void. I was gonna, I was gonna ask if you all came to the same conclusion or not, because I'd find it hard to believe that 150 scholars all came to the exact conclusion, because scholars, in essence, can never seem to agree with each other. Oh, you're right, but they didn't actually. What they did was to there was this voting system, notorious. Um, we would debate uh, a particular saying of Jesus or story about Jesus. And was this historically genuine? Did Jesus do this? Did Jesus say this? And after all the fascinating debate, and there were various views, we would vote with, uh, they'd pass around um, a plastic thing with, with uh, beads of different colors and would vote by putting bead in another container, the, the color you preferred. If you thought that, oh yes, certainly Jesus did or said this, you'd vote with the bead. If you thought, well, uh, it's a little suspicious, but probably yeah, uh, as you put in the paint. If you thought, really a problem here, but you can't really rule it out. He, it, it might have happened, or he might have said it. Uh, you'd use a gray bead. And if you said, no, th there's no way uh, Jesus actually said or did this, a black one. I uh, said at one meeting, I think, well, how about a purple um, thing that, that would put in a bead that would mean Jesus did say it, but it was only kidding. Give away your money to the poor. <laughs> Just get, uh, just turn the other cheek. Go in there, didn't I? Because that's how people treat a lot of the sayings, anyway. But anyhow, uh, what they would do is do uh, count them all up and rate the sayings. Uh, okay, uh, so and so percentage of the fellows of Visa Seminar uh, voted red. Uh, as a, a smaller percentage, pink, smaller, still gray, and so these weighted averages or whatever would go on record, so you would, and eventually they books containing uh, summaries of the discussion and uh, why votes went the way they did, but they 
it wasn't unanimous. They never claimed that. At the most, they would say, well, the most of the fellows thought this. And uh, and there were, uh, there used to be a whole lot of difference, um, but uh, you had group break off because they didn't appreciate the uh, approach that tended to dominate or that, that were big on the so the ancient sociology and anthropology of the Middle East because that sheds a lot of light on things like turning the uh, and uh, they thought that that was so important and it wasn't getting enough airtime so they quit. There were others that uh, thought literary criticism was more important than historical. That was and getting enough emphasis, so they quit and stopped getting new members in. But they still did not agree. Like most of them thought that Jesus was not an apocalypse. He didn't believe the end of the world was at hand. He was more like a sage. But there were still some who did. And so you, would, you had an idea who believed what. And uh, so it was a pretty fair thing. And the idea was just to wait the interested public with what different critical scholars are saying because you're not going to hear church, uh, nor should you. I mean, uh, again, I don't think sermons should be about stuff like that. If people want to know, yeah, we should tell them. But that's not really edifying. So. so where do you think the difference comes in? Because I've, I've read a lot of scholarly research, um, and there are people that have studied the same stuff you have for same amount of time mm. decades and come to vastly different conclusions than you how do you feel about that in the scholarly realm well the evidence is fragmentary and equivocal and points in different directions uh inevitably uh, a scholar will listen, uh if something fits well with it seems like, well, that's probably a good context. But others would say, uh, appeal to some other, that there are hints that Jesus was an anti-Roman revolutionary. And that ought to be where we start. And then you would say the, the other stuff that doesn't agree with it, that's probably a later layer. Uh, well, there's... You, you sort of have to do that given the nature of the evidence, but no such conclusion can be dogmatic. All of these these assessments are just provisional and tentative. You might hear somebody's argument and say, oh, I never thought of that. You're right. Uh, sometimes that happens, but you'll never have unanimity on that. And when I helped edit a recent book called Varieties of Jesus Mythicism, because there's a whole bunch of different versions of that, I pointed out in introduction what I just said. You have many people that believe in a historical Jesus that define very differently. And you would be sure, hey, it's no better in our neck of the woods because there's a whole different non historical Jesus. And, and a lot of so it's, it's like overtures. It's an embarrassment of riches. You can't really ever be sure. And it's kind of an ongoing mind game, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> okay, so we got uh, Travis here in the comments said, Christopher, I could listen to him all day. 
do what you can to bring him back. I sure will, Travis. <laughs> Maybe um, he meant I feel like I have been listening to him all. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> no, it's a privilege to be here. I don't do it anytime. It's a privilege to have you on. Okay, let's see what we got here. And I, I regret I cannot get to all the comments. And there was there were there were a few I, I I saw earlier, and it's just what happens here in my live stream software. Once there's so much comments, I lose the earlier ones. So yeah. I mean, I can't I can't get them back, and it scrolls way up there. So my apologies to those of you who um, dropped questions in there, and I just couldn't get to them. Uh, if you have any more questions, please drop them in there. Um, uh, by the way, uh, I'm happy to answer questions on the Bible Geek, which I do. Uh, I try to do it at least once a week, where I just have a bunch of emailed questions and then start pontificating window on them. So if anybody wants to email though to me, uh, my uh, address is criticus. The word critic with the U.S. on the end. Criticus at AOL dot com. And it may take me a while. I'll I'll get to them. I I love answering these questions. Obviously, excellent. And uh, could you let the um, let me see here? Yeah, we'll be we'll be wrapping up in, uh, shortly here. Could you let everybody know how to get a hold of your books and uh, and your other materials, Doctor Bob? Well, uh, I would say just about all my books are available through Amazon. I believe we all of them are still in print. And, uh, let's see. I, I wish I had copies to uh, to send out occasionally people ask, but I don't really have these anymore. Um, my website is Robert M. Price, all one word in space. Not my vendor, that, which is V-E-N-D-O-R. Uh, um, mindvendor.com. Yeah, Robert and Price. Mindvendor.com. And there's an archive of my old sermons, of a bunch of my articles, even some of my short stories. I uh, have. Uh, oh, in fact, <laughs> for our topic tonight, um, there's this great recently deceased fantasy writer, Richard L. Tierney, and was a fan of Conan and Robert E. Howard's fiction, as I have also been. And he decided to write these sword and sorcery adventures of Simon Magus. Uh, perhaps he was a swordsman, former who knew magic. And he wrote these, oh, a dozen of great adventure stories. Uh, I compiled them in a, a collection for Chaosium uh, years ago. But he, shortly before, he gave me permission to continue the adventures of the character, uh, which I've been doing in the anthology series called Flashing Swords. Uh, and uh, so it, it's great fun having some and meet the druids or Egyptian pharaohs and so on. Tierney did it better than me, but I couldn't let it die. Excellent. Uh, for those uh, of the viewers there, I actually I do have your website 
in the description on this video. Great. So the website is there and you said all of your books are available on Amazon or at least most, most of them are. Yeah. If there are any, there are a couple I published that they might not have, but even those probably are. And uh, let me, let me just see if I can post, I'm going to see if I can post uh, your email address you were talking about. Um, critic us at, at AOL. Yeah. So uh, I'm mm. not sure, Dr. Bob, if you can see the screen there, but I up in, or down in the bottom left-hand corner, as I, I, is that it? It's critic, uh, criticus at AOL.com, right? Yes, I don't see it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's... Somehow. Criticus at AOL.com. Okay. Criticus, yeah. Criticus. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I got it up there anyway. So, um, all right. Well, uh, let me just see what we got here in the last. <laughs> Sergeant or. Sergeant R, he's a brother that comes on every once in a while. Um, he says, I feel like getting rid of most of the New Testament now, LOL. Oh, I hope not. I love it all. Okay. All right. Um, okay, so Dr. Bob, I'm going to be wrapping it up. And um, I really, really appreciate your time and, and again, your wisdom and your knowledge and uh, and uh, all the things that you shared with us tonight. It's so much uh, we can. I'm sure uh, each one of us, we can listen to this video like, you know, 20 times over and still not get it all. Because you'll be falling asleep in <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you sh if you want to record the class so you can listen to it uh, in uh, in your car, go ahead. Be sure you fall asleep at the wheel. <laughs> Could be an ever-present danger. All right. So definitely, um, yeah, I appreciate your time, Dr. Price. And um, Thank you very much for coming on. I want you guys in the live chat and everyone that's listening to let Dr. Price know how much you appreciate him. I know there was, I saw a few comments there earlier. Uh, let me just see here. I know a lot of them we missed. Uh, Eric, Eric says, this was earlier on. Thank, uh, thanks for, for answering that interesting take, Dr. Price. Uh, Eric says, thank you again. Um, uh, let's just see here. Travis says, I'm studying this. Thanks, guys. Question for move says, cool. Thanks. Uh, and Great Deception says, good night, everyone. Thank you, Christopher. Much love to you all and blessings. Mm. All right. Okay, guys. Um, one John says, thank, 
Thank all of you. A great night. Tammy says, this was, this, uh, this was a, this was great. Does Dr. Price have an email? Yeah, we just shared that. Criticus, C-R-I-T-I-C-U-S at AOL.com. Criticus at AOL.com. Okay, yes. And so, Dr. Bob, I hope uh, I'll be, I'll definitely take Travis's advice. I was planning on doing that anyway, but uh, yeah. certainly want to see you back here uh, mm. soon, Dr. Dr. Bob. Oh, yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Will, too. Yeah. Will, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. And uh, it's always a pleasure being with Will here. Mm. And so, God bless you guys. Thanks a lot. Any. All right, well, and Dr. Bob, God bless you guys. Blessings multiplied to you. And so I'm closing this off. And uh, so I pray for everyone here that's watching and, uh, and for everybody that's listening. As always, I pray the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom, peace. Amen, amen. Okay, guys, thanks a lot. God bless you guys. God bless you guys, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Bye.